Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode two of Through the Years, the podcast where two devilish young gentlemen re- review Ring of Honor's history from the beginning, show by show. And if you're wondering who those two devilishly handsome young gentlemen are, my name is Trevor Dame. Some people might know me on a message board or two as Hobbs. I'm from Brit- British Columbia, Canada. The most exciting thing that happened to me this week was my Aunt Shirley visited. And my co-host is the two-podcast man from New York, the man who hosts List em and Learn, the man who created this podcast, and the man who did the most exciting thing he did this week was go to the freaking Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremony. He is Matt Feuerstein. Matt, how are you doing? Hey, Hobbs. I was going to say the most exciting thing that happened to me this week was that your Aunt Shirley visited you. Oh, she brought some homemade kombucha, like Matt Seidel was just licking his lips, looking at it. It was great to hear about. Um, yeah. So, uh, thank you. Uh, there's only one of us is devilishly handsome, and it's you. I'm just, uh, not real. I'm just devilish. Um, just because I have a 666 on my head doesn't mean I'm devilishly handsome. And a 666 pack of <laughs> oh. apps. Um, yeah, oh. so... Uh, Blackberry ginger ale. I, I, I'm not going to talk too much about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction because we do want these to be evergreen, and I don't want you to know what year it yes. was that I went mm-hmm. to it. So, okay. uh, <laughs> Whatever you want, Jeff. Um, so I guess I don't think this episode will be as long as the first one because we had to do a lot of introduction in the first one. But I guess only you, the listener, you know the answer before we do. But the one thing, we, there, I do have a little bit of business to take care of before we get to the review today. And I think the first thing I have to do is I think we should thank pretty much everybody who uh, gave, a, gave us feedback because there was a surprising amount of people who gave us positive feedback for the first episode of a show about a kind of niche promotion. And we didn't do a lot of um, promotion of it, just a few message boards and Twitter. And we got a lot of nice feedback and a lot and even a few people saying like they're going to follow along with us and i was just really surprised by that level of feedback yeah me too no one ever listens to my podcast so uh, i guess that you're the draw no 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 you're the established name i mean we're even in the list of and learn feed so we're we're kind of piggybacking on the foundation you've built and by the way i i I, in the first episode i called you hobbs because i didn't know if you were willing to break kayfabe and use your full name on these podcasts so it's good to know from now on uh i could just call you my buddy trevor Yes. By episode four or five, I'll start giving away like my healthcare card like <laughs> number and stuff. I, I will slowly devolve more information, and when you can finally assume my identity, that's when I won't be needed anymore. You don't have social security numbers in Canada, right? Uh, we have either – I don't know if it's called so- social security. I just know it's the same basic thing where once every year I have to dig out a card that's like way in my closet to – get an incredibly important number that means everything apparently well in, in america ours is so important that we all have our social security numbers memorized and if someone gets it it is the key to our entire lives Ooh, yeah my i i might have a key to my entire life but i don't think anyone wants to like plug that lock so i think i'm pretty good you'd, you'd we'll see again i'm going to give out sporadic pieces of information and we'll find out all right but yeah, um, just a lot of people that were doing saying r- really nice things. I know, uh, especially some people, you know, everyone's feedback means equally as much, but some people's feedback means a lot more. Like uh, Alan Forel, you know, who does a great podcast that you've been a guest on. You've done on Dr. Keith Presents. You've been a great guest on the Daniel Bryan episode, the 
career retrospective. Everyone that hasn't listened to that, if you don't, I think if you like this podcast, you're guaranteed to like that. And if you don't like this podcast, you still might like that. You're making me blush, Hobbs. <laughs> Trevor, Trevor. Sorry. It doesn't matter. You can call me anything you want. T Dame. Anything. T Dame. T Dubs. Trevor William. Uh, see, that's another piece of information. Um, yeah, and uh, Chad Campbell from. Uh, where the big boys play. I know that's a podcast I'm a fan of. He mentioned listening to the show. I know uh, Rich Krejci from Voices of Wrestling said he might check it out. I mean, it's it's very touching, especially just knowing how much time people spend on podcasts producing them now and thinking about them. The idea that you would even want to continue to listen to other wrestling podcasts. Especially, even consider- giving- especially considering how little time we spend producing these. I mean, it's a, it's a real hatchet job. Yeah, exactly. Like... I spend way too much time thinking about the second episode and compared to other people who are doing much more involved productions. And uh, I know Supersonic, who does um, posts of Ring of Honor reviews on websites. He's tried to spread the word a bit and been very encouraging. But just really everybody. It, it's, it's always nice to hear that people enjoying stuff. I mean, that's why we're putting this out and not just keeping them in, t- in a J.D. Salinger-style vault. So it's it's very nice to hear that. And if you want to contact, contact us, there is Through the Years, that's T-H-R-O-H for the through, through the years at gmail.com for email. There is at Trevor Dame for Twitter for me. There's at Mayor MGF for Matt on Twitter. And there's also, I've only started three threads on the Figure Four Wrestling Observer website, the Voices of Wrestling website, and the Pro Wrestling Only website. But for anyone that happens to like one of those sites, I'm I know I at least I I think Matt does too. Check out at least a couple of those sites. Mm-hmm. You know, if someone wants to make a comment there rather than write an email or Twitter, you know, I mean, there's been a little bit of chatter and conversation already. The, those threads should be pretty easy to find. So, again, I'd like to thank everybody, but. Before we get into the show, uh, there's two spe- more specific people I'd like to thank who kind of brought something to the show. And the first was Twitter user at GoodnightLove35, who enjoyed the show, but kind of was interested in, I guess what I would say was the most talked about part of the first episode, which was kind of our rant on the homophobic commentary in the opening segment. And he actually went as far as to tweet Steve Carino himself, kind of asking... What was up with that? And first off, let me make clear. I think me and Matt can both agree. We're not like looking for a witch hunt. We're not looking to cost anybody their jobs. You know, I'm not, I don't think we're making any judgments about who Steve Crino is and what he personally believes or Eric Gargiulo. We were just calling something out. We thought was pretty bad. But that being said, I also don't think this guy's question was anything harsh at all. And I thought Steve Crino's answer wasn't great, but it's interesting to at least talk about his basic Steve Crino's reply word for word to kind of the cons- this guy's concerns about that segment was, "Gosh, no, heel heat in 2002 was way different, cringeworthy. I loved the Christopher Street connection as characters and people." And to me, I have to say, like, if I had a gun to my head, I wouldn't stay- say Steve Carino is homophobic. But that's a pretty weak answer because Steve wasn't really leaning too hard into the heel commentary role in these early shows. 
And Eric Gargiulo, who was the neutral play-by-play guy, was selling it right along with him just as hard. Probably even worse. Yeah. So this idea that, oh, I was just playing a heel character. I mean, if he was playing a heel character here, he was turning it up here to a level that he didn't turn it up anywhere else on the show. Well, also, also, I don't think the question was, what do you think of the Christopher Street connection as people? It was like, are you really homophobic? Yes, yeah, and which that that not, question does not answer because, as far as I know, the Christopher Street connection are not actually gay. From according, to, at least based on a a uh, shoot interview I heard from Homicide from back in that time period. Hmm, that's interesting. I di- honestly didn't know, but yeah, and and to make clear, not that I don't think it's really important to you, you don't need to be gay to ask this question, but the person mentioned that asked this question had told had told us that you know he was a homosexual man and also a Steve Carino fan so this kind of hit in the Venn diagram of those two interests men and Steve Carino yeah, I guess I, they are yeah I, I don't th- I don't I also don't think that at least now Steve Carino is homophobic and I also think that it was something that happened 15 years ago and not going to hold it against him you know I think it's just, it's hard for people to admit like yeah I was part of something gross and I have no excuse for it. You know, like, mm-hmm. I think that's just, it's hard for people to admit, you know, because, um, you know, especially it's, you know, it's a little more awkward when you're called out on it as opposed to, like, just mention, you know, I think if you if you wanted to, like, on your own, just, like, give me a culpa about it, that's one thing. But when you feel like you're, like, backed into a corner, it's probably hard. So I, I don't feel like, I want to feel like I'm making excuses for him, but I don't think he was the main culprit here. I think that whoever booked this was the main culprit. <laughs> Yeah, I think the comedy did commentary did make it worse, but but uh, but were they direct? Were they guided and directed in that commentary? We're yeah, sure. we, yeah, and you know, again, people are allowed to grow and change and grow up. I mean, I know I believed things when I was younger that I certainly wouldn't believe now. And again, so you know, prejudiced against koalas. Oh, you them all dead. They're eating all my eucalyptus, man. I can't stand it. But now I, you. But now you know. Now you know that that's just what they eat. They can't help it. I squeeze a stress ball. I watch thirty minutes of koala. koala I watch thirty minutes of Kamala videos, and thirty minutes of koala videos because that kind of evens it out. One makes me furious. One makes me rub my belly in happiness. It's a good way to use. Uh, it's a good way to use an hour. Yes. Speaking of race. Speaking of racist characters, <laughs> mentioning Kamala. But what? Know. No. You're kidding me. Um. But I'll just say there was a podcast I used to like, a comedy podcast that's now sadly defunct called Walking the Room, and the host would say there, we do not attack as a pack. So I would I love that this guy asked this question. If I think if you are prompted to ask kind of insightful, kind of polite questions like this, go ahead. To anyone, I think I just want to put out there, again, in this age of kind of I think a lot of rightful kind of outrage gets dismissed as witch hunts, but I think there are some real witch hunts that happen nowadays on the internet. And I'm sure Steve Carino, when he says stuff like cringeworthy, means it, but also probably he's very aware that, you know, he just got a job recently with the WWE, and he probably knows that in nowadays there's very little tolerance to have those kind of rev- those views out in the open. That rightfully so. <laughs> yeah. And so finally, the one last um, person I'd like to single out, and this will dovetail right into some discussion, we'll finally get to the meat of this, is, I won't say his name, but somebody was kind enough to email us access to a whole collection 
of Wrestling Observer newsletters that are not are kind of in the gap between the old ones Dave has on the site and the newer ones. There's that once a week gap that'll be finished by the time we're all dead. And unfortunately for us, that covered most of the kind of heyday of Ring of Honor, creatively at least in our opinion. Spoiler: we like the early years, and so. Those issues, I think, are really... I've learned a lot from reading those issues. I, I, I found a lot of interesting things. I'm not going to say his, this person's name when I thank him, just because, you know, I don't know if he wants that out there. But one thing I will say, I think this should go into this, is how we're going to use Dave Meltzer on this podcast, which is there are already great podcasts that really analyze Dave Meltzer and newsletters in general you know where the big boys play do an extent kind of Meltzer segment where they review what Meltzer said about wcw in the weeks before each um pay-per-view they review obviously um between the sheets uses all sorts of wrestling newsletters as kind of a jumping off point for of the probably the most exhaustive detailed knowledgeable podcast you'll hear on wrestling and so I, when I got these newsletters, I really want to use them, but I don't want to fall into the trap of having a big chunk of Dave analysis or analysis of Dave when other podcasts do that probably already and kind of stake that claim. But reading these newsletters, I kind of realized that Dave, you know, there doesn't say that much on a week to week basis about Ring of Honor. And so there will not be a, a huge Dave section each week, but there will probably be a little bit of Dave some weeks off the top and some of his tidbits scattered throughout because I don't think you can run from Dave either because he actually was kind of an underrated part of Ring of Honor's rise, I would think. Well, in terms of getting the buzz out there, I, I, I first heard of Ring of Honor through, I think, Wrestling Observer, uh, the Wrestling Observer, and then also Wrestling Observer Live, which was... You know, I don't think it was... It wasn't on yet. It was in between its Yada run and its uh, Sports Byline run when ROH started. But I think the first episode was actually the night of WrestleMania 18. And so by the second show, uh, uh, the second ROH show, Wrestling Observer Live was up and running. And I very much remember Gabe Sapolsky going on there very early on, talking about the whole concept of the Code of Honor and talking about how Christopher Daniels uh, wouldn't... um, you know, wouldn't shake hands, and that, you know, definitely piqued my interest, and then, you know, as the years went on, Dave would kind of hype some of the big matches, you know, he talked he talked up the first main event, and the, uh, and the second main event, which we'll get to later, uh, he wasn't really talking about them very often, but I very much remember how important he was by, like, 2004, um, when some of those big Samoa Joe matches were happening, um, and, uh, well, we'll get to that, I guess, you know, way down the line, but, um, but I, uh, but I do think you're right that he had a pretty important, in important, um, important, uh, I guess, role. I should say in in ROH's rise and in its getting attention. Yeah, I think going back and reading these newsletters, it was interesting to see he gave them. You know, most non-show weeks there was almost nothing. Usually, often nothing about Ring of Honor. Occasionally, a little tidbit. But on show weeks, he usually had a pretty detailed report that he would put pretty high up in the here and there section. And even among those first shows, you know, he was kind of prioritizing getting a tape of anything he heard that had a lot of buzz to it from Ring of Honor. And 
we can people can debate how important Dave's like approval and and praise of certain Ring of Honor things were to sales, but. One thing I don't think can be disputed is how important Gabe Sapolsky, the Booker of Ring of Honor, thought it was. I think I heard a shoot interview where I think when one of the the Joe um, Punk matches got five stars, I think they I'm, – I'm not 100% sure this is correct, but I recall in the in a shoot they, that they did together, they mentioned that like, Gabe was the one that told them, I think. Like, he was that excited about, like, Dave Meltzer, you know, gave you guys five stars. And if you look through these early observers – you can sometimes see direct quotes from Gabe, but even when there's not direct quotes, there's a lot of comments that are pretty clearly from Gabe to Dave directly. Like you said, he was a fairly frequent guest on um, Wrestling Observer Radio. And even just stuff like doing some research, looking at the Takedown Masters kind of mass-produced, re-released versions of the first uh, few Ring of Honor shows that were kind of sold in major stores... They have right on the front of them, you know, voted promotion of the year by the Wrestling Observer Newsletter. So obviously, you know, it was a pretty big deal to the people at Ring of Honor whenever Dave kind of gave them props. And I think something Gabe kind of misses today because there was a few months ago where Gabe was kind of posted some tweet where he was seemed a little bit down that Gabe that uh, Dave wasn't giving as much attention to Evolve as he used to give Ring of Honor. Yeah, I mean, I could I could see that because. You know, it's very clear how much less attention Evolve gets than ROH did at the time. Um, and I do think part of it is how much uh, Meltzer covers it. When Meltzer covers something, the audience that, are, that uh, ROH was going for at that time pays attention. Um, we see that with, um, you know, his increased coverage of New Japan has led to New Japan winning all the Wrestling Observer Awards. Things like that. It's just, it's very, it's very clear what an important influence he has. So I... I think it's completely understandable why uh, why Gabe would would uh, would be so desirous of that um, of that sort of attention from Meltzer and the Observer readership in general. Hmm. And I I know certainly I don't know if that was where I heard of Ring of Honor, but it was certainly Dave kind of covering it larger than most indies. Was something that kind of reinforced when I was starting out, like this is something I should pay attention to. Yeah, I don't think in 2002 I was reading message boards too regularly that were like indie wrestling centric. So I don't know where I would have heard of it other than Meltzer. You know, I check in on Death Valley Driver every once in a while, but it wasn't my like go-to uh, message board. You know what I mean? Yeah, that was my main spot too. Was the Death and other arena? Although I don't know how much ROH centric stuff they were having, they were more focused on Japan. But you and I were on a message board, uh, which is where we know each other from. Uh, Justin Shapiro was on that. Uh, Joe Gagne at, at some points. A few other people. James Kalin, and uh, you know we, that was a very WWF centric message board. Uh, pretty much always, you know. So so you really you really didn't get much ROH talk or indie talk in general on that site. Yeah, anyone who wants to try and search out Sea uh, Dog's most excellent form or something like that on Delphi, that was kind of like the groundlings for a bunch of people that have gone on to do podcasts and be very entertaining about wrestling, like like Matt said, Justin Shapiro, Albert Ching, who now works for uh, Comic Book Resources in addition to being on some wrestling podcasts. Um, now, Matt, it's, now it's me. called CBR.com. Oh, I'm out of touch. Mm-hmm. Need to start reading more. Uh, Tom Feely, just Joe Gagne. Super, you know, super famous people. Yeah, <laughs> just 
the biggest stars, like you're blinded by their magnitude. And now this compliment now sounds like a put down, a sarcastic put down. Um, it is. Yeah. I'm seething. I'm, I'm seething like they're koalas, Mm -hmm. but okay. So I, before we go into tonight's review, there's a couple pieces of kind of Dave centric observer tidbits. I've been able to get about air of honor begins. One thing we were talking about last week was how, how much did the Murphy rec center hold? And Dave kind of gives us the answer, but he kind of doesn't, because a few weeks before Air of Honor begins, Dave says that Air of Honor, ROH's first show, which we reviewed in the now classic through the years number one, was a 400-ticket advanced sellout five days before the show. Then the week after the show, when he reviews it, he says it's a 425-ticket sellout, but 50 were comps, which seems like a lot for 425 people to me. I don't know. Pretty then, high percentage comps. Yeah. Like, I don't know why you would give out 50 comps in a four. I, I don't know. But then weeks later, Dave well, if, goes if, back. If every wrestler gets to bring, like, two people, you know, there were, <laughs> I don't think there were 25 wrestlers on the show, but there were probably, that's probably, like, 25 people right there. Yeah. Huh. I, I really wonder how much of that was comps or if Dave's even right. Because later... Another couple weeks after the show, Dave goes back to saying it was a 400-seat sellout. So the only thing I can really take from this is the first show, you know, the Murphy Rec Center probably holds 400 to 425, 450, and the show probably sold, you know, most of it out, but probably gave away a few tickets on top. That would be my summation of these three kind of different Dave stories. And that is one thing I am. we're going to have to be a bit careful when we... Uh, review dave's coverage of ring of honor is i've noticed already kind of reading over a lot of it there are things dave says early on that maybe don't quite pan out things like him maybe being more sure of ring of honors kind of how stable financially they are and then maybe a year or two later when he looks back on it with other sources Maybe at the time he was saying that they were kind of meeting their budget, maybe they really weren't. Yeah, honestly, if, if it's up to me, like, I would barely talk about ROH's, like, attendance and financial success at all because so much of that information is completely unreliable that we would just sort of be, like, contradicting ourselves and, you know, just searching for through, like, a haystack to find the real answer of all that stuff. Yeah, I think I'm going to give the declared observer attendance for each show, but kind of leave it at that. And at least we'll be using the single source, and then people can kind of judge it for what whatever it is. Yeah, I think I think it's pretty clear. Like just you know now you know having uh, you know having followed ROH you know for so many years, they weren't bleeding money because they were very careful with their spending, but they also never really were like a particularly profitable company and people with money had to keep putting money into it. I think that's that's a pretty fair way of saying uh, how ROH did financially over the years. Yes, I mean, Carrie Silken had to come in and take, like I think, 45% of the company a little over a year in. So a company is not doing great, I would say, if, if someone has to do that. But at, also, on the other hand, you know, when Rob Feinstein got forced out with the scandal... He didn't want to be forced out. He wanted to transfer his ownership to Doug Gentry, his you know one of his Ring of Honor and our video co-workers and uh, friends, and he wanted to eventually come back. So I don't think you would be fighting so hard to try and stay in if it was like 
just bleeding red deeply. But obviously, Ring of Honor was never something that was super profitable. Right. And the very last bit I thought was really interesting. I'm going to read a little bit of Dave because I think it's really fascinating to see what Dave's thoughts, not just on Ring of Honor, but indie wrestling in general 15 years ago was compared to now. And I think it kind of really illustrates how far things have come. So this is Dave, Dave's kind of review of the first show, Air of Honor Begins. I saw the 223 Ring of Honor show from Philadelphia, and it was an excellent show, totally living up to the hype. In particular, the three-way main event of American Dragon, Daniels, and Low-Key was as good as any independent match I've ever seen. Usually when you hear raves about a show or an indie match being four and a half stars, when you watch it, you end up saying, or at least I do 95% of the time, that there are good moves, but they are so green they aren't at the level of workers as all but the bottom guys in WWF. And it's good for an indie show, but wouldn't play on the big stage. Anyway, I want to give my TV a standing ovation seeing these three because of how stiff and innovative they were without missing anything. One thing a lot of people don't seem to realize is these three are great in their style, but it is not WWF style. I don't think any of them would fit in and look as good in WWF because of a number of reasons. You can't do 25-minute matches in WWF. You can't work this stiff a style when you do 200 matches a year. These guys are also small, which you don't notice against each other, and size matters little, if any, if you can work on the indie level, but it would be painful in WWF. Plus, the match relied a lot on cool submissions, which the typical WWF audience wouldn't get. WWF has trained its fans to look for size, physique, a cool finisher, and a good rap. On the indies, guys get over by doing cool moves, and as headliners, by combining them with by combining them with having their mat work look solid, with size not an issue as long as they look in shape, personality a minor issue, talking not an issue, and a quote-unquote look not an issue if you can produce once the bell sounds. But to their credit, they did almost a perfect match for the crowd that came, which was a crowd that came to see stiff moves, cool moves, and good execution of those moves. Timing-wise, these guys right now are in a bad time. Ten years ago, they would have been great for Japan when that business was stronger and foreign junior heavies who could produce were a big deal. Five years ago, they would have been great for WCW undercards, as they could have had great matches underneath while being buried from getting any higher, but would have had an unlimited supply of guys to work with and learn from. So that's Dave 15 years ago, and obviously, the idea, just some of the things that really stand out are Dave saying, you know, how he's shocked an indie match is that good, how usually they're way overhyped, how, you know... This was the great at four and a half stars. This was the greatest indie match he had ever seen. When years later, he would give multiple indie matches five stars. Just a couple of years later, with uh, Joe and uh, Punk, and I think the big thing also is it shows you know maybe Dave was a little bit wrong, but also just how different WWF was. Him saying you know not even being able to imagine these guys fitting in in WWF, and I guess you could say he was right about two guys, but. One guy, he uh, wasn't that right about, man. Well, I, I don't think that he was right about any of them, honestly. I mean, I see why he thought that, and I'm sure a lot of people still think of that, like that if um, those guys went to the WWF in 2002, you know, they wouldn't get over. And I do think probably WWF would bury them. 
but I think any of those guys, even then, if given the chance to get over, could have gotten over. The, the, the pet peeve that I have, especially even in, in Melter's analysis of um, indie guys, and this was even true when Danielson got signed in 2009, is you know talking about, yo, well, he can't do the kind of matches that get, get him over in WWF, or WWE, I should say, and such and such. And it's just like, if people are that good, why do you assume that that's the only thing they can do? You know what I mean? Like, like you don't think that they have the capability of adapting to their environment? Like he said, they had the perfect match for the crowd that was there. But if they were, if they were in front of a different crowd, as evidenced by the fact that they did do this, they would have had they would have been good under those circumstances. Um, now, you know, again, Danielson would have really had to have been allowed to look cool and dominant and not get squashed, because um, he obviously didn't have the personality yet at that time. Loki, though. I think if he was just allowed to wrestle short matches where he did low-key stuff, I think he could have gotten over. I mean, look at Tajiri. Tajiri got over. They never did anything with him, but he got over when he first came, for sure. In 2001, uh, he was really over. Um, And Daniels, I think, was an all-around great performer, and he could have gotten over, too. So it's not like only tall guys get over. Maybe only tall guys got pushed, you know, with the exception of guys like Guerrero and Jericho and uh, Benoit, but... As far as, like, could these guys have gotten over? Yes, they could have. I Even in 2002, I believe that firmly. I think could have and would have are two different things. I think maybe the flaw Dave sometimes has is sometimes he kind of conflates those two things. He kind of he puts what the WWE's mindset at the time is, is kind of the all-encompassing, he almost phrases it as the all-encompassing what wrestling is. Which, obviously, the fact that look how different WWF is today in some respects proves that even the biggest company in the world that can be incredibly stubborn can kind of change. I mean, I remember Dave would talk about Kevin Steen when he was Kevin Owens on the indie scene saying, you know, man, this guy has a lot of talent, but, you know, he's got to have to lose weight and he can't, you know, WWE won't let him wrestle in a shirt and basketball shorts. Well, Kevin Steen was the world champion in on Raw in a shirt and basketball shorts, not really much lighter than he was on the indies. So things do change. Standards do change. Yeah, and a lot of it is also just like the whims of the guys in charge. I mean, Cesaro, you think, has every single thing going for him that WWE could possibly want. He's amazing in pretty much every way and over, but they won't really push him. You know, and it, they've, you know, it's been years, and they just, they're probably just never going to. Um, I hope I'm wrong about that. Um, and then, you know, there's guys like um, Sami Zayn, who, you know, I, I don't think there's any doubt that if they decided that they were going to make Sami Zayn like a big-time underdog babyface when he first came in, that he would have gotten over in that role. It might be too late for him now. I don't know. Maybe not, because people do still like him. But, you know, even with all the changes, you know, if they decide they're not going to push you, you're not going to get over. So, with that said, if they would have pushed these guys, they, would, they had the ability to get over in WWE. That, yeah. That's kind of all I'm, all I'm saying. Particularly Danielson, who I think really was aware of kind of what people saw as his main weakness, which was his mic skills. He We'll get to a little bit later in this show, in the review, he kind of self-deprecates his own mic skills on this show. And I think that's something, he was a guy, to your point, he was adaptable. He was very aware of what was perceived as his big flaws. And I think he would have continued to work on those flaws regardless of where he was, including WWF. I agree with that, too. Um, since you actually read um, Meltzer's take on the first show, would you mind if I read uh, 
Brian Danielson's take on the first show from his uh, from his book that came out a couple of years ago. No, that would be great. Consider this, everyone, just like a little a little supplemental to the first show. Just you hear, you know what you got to do. You got to get your own editing software. You got to cut this chunk out. You got to stitch it to the first episode, and then you're swimming in tall cotton or shedding in it or something in cotton. Have anyway, Matt, no idea what you're talking about, but I'm going to start reading. Um, okay. So it's, the first show was titled "The Era of Honor Begins," and it was held at the Murphy Rec Center in Philadelphia. That night. ROH officials were very smart in creating a main event that people wanted to see. Eddie Guerrero had been let go by WWE after a drunk driving incident in November 2001, but he was wrestling all over the place after his release to prove he was one of the best in the world. Fans loved Eddie, so he was a great choice for the main event against a popular Mexican wrestler from ECW named Super Crazy. It was something of a dream match. They used Eddie versus Super Crazy to draw people to the show, but the plan was to get people hooked on hooked with the younger, hungrier, independent talent and build off of us. On that first show, I was in a triple threat match against Loki and Christopher Daniels. Loki had established himself as the hottest young independent talent in the Northeast, and he and I had a history of good matches. Daniels was an established independent wrestler known for main eventing all over the country, from Los Angeles to, and the Bay Area to Chicago and the Northeast. He'd won the original King of Indies tournament and, in, and the Super 8 in 2000. Plus, he wrestled on WCW television for a brief time prior to their clothing. closing. I believe that brief time he's mentioning was one match, <laughs> as far as I can <laughs> tell. But um, Even with an event headlined by Eddie Guerrero and featuring a number of highly talented indie wrestling stars, ours was the match that was going to drive main events forward for the next year. We ended up having a great match, mostly due to the creativity of Key and Daniels, who'd been in numerous triple threats. The finish saw me lock Daniels in the cattle mutilation. Then, with me upside down and bridging on my neck, Loki came off the top with a twisting 450 splash onto both of us. It was a spectacular move, and he ended up pinning Daniels for the win. It was exactly what ROH needed to brand itself as the place to see great independent wrestling. The show was terrific, but I honestly didn't think too much of it because lots of promotions had grand ideas and then would go out of business shortly after. They booked me for a couple of events beyond that night, but I didn't necessarily count on it as something that was going to be around. Boy, was I wrong. All right. Yeah, that's really, again, fascinating where, you know, Ring of Honor, it, it's weird. It was in this weird middle ground where people were covering it maybe because of the Feinstein connections and the talent booked a little higher than some other indies. But at the same time, the wrestlers, you know, they had been burned so many times. I think a lot of the wrestlers kind of didn't, they didn't immediately see it as what it would become. They were hesitant, even if they saw potential in it. Yeah, I mean, makes sense, right? They, uh... You're not gonna you're not gonna count on something until it's something. Yeah, there's far too many. Uh, I forget what that Court Bauer promotion was. MLW. That, yeah, and then there was that H two or something that went on too, where there's a lot of promotions that have kind of a beginning that seems real hot, but they can't sustain. There was that promotion that I think there was some other promotion too a few years ago that booked something crazy. I think they booked like Tiger Mask Four and Mike Quackenbush for a show and a bunch of other kind of wacky matchups but ray of honor obviously um stood the test of time and it's time now segue segue to start the second show the review of the second show this is round robin challenge from march 30th 2002 we're back at the murphy rec center which will be for a few more shows consistently and we'll be there quite a bit for a couple years and According to Dave, they drew only 325, which Dave says, you can say Easter weekend and all that, 
but it just shows how limited the work rate audience to see indie guys really is. Now, I would argue maybe Easter really did affect it, and also it's notable that this show does not have Eddie Guerrero. It does not have Super Crazy. This is the first Ring of Honor show that kind of has to sink or swim completely on the merits of indie wrestling. And so we start off, actually, before we start off, this we have to say goodbye first, because this is Eric Gargiulo's second show and his final show as the first play-by-play man in Ring of Honor history. And there will be lots of announcers that come in and out of the doors of Ring of Honor. Eric is the first one to leave, only two shows in. And if you're wondering why, well... You know, I don't know how much I can rely on just one source, but I'm going to let Eric explain for himself because I found a interview done by, let me just see here, Justin Henry from a 2013 for WrestleCrap.com. And Eric Gargiulo basically says he left because of heat CZW and ROH had between them. I'll just read this quick little blurb from Eric Gargiulo. It was weird, and looking back on it, God, was it so stupid. We, CZW, all had this war mentality when at the end of the day, it really came down to Zandig and Rob Black and Rob Feinstein. Nobody really cared about us. A great example of this is when I quit Ring of Honor. I was never pressured to quit, but it got so hot between Rob and Gabe and CZW that I just felt out of loyalty I should quit. Worst career decision ever, by the way. Here, a couple years later, when XPW comes in, you have CCW making a deal to work with Ring of Honor on an angle. When it was convenient for these companies to work together, none of that other stuff mattered. It was a big slap in the face, in a sense. Looking back on it now, all of those companies were just so corny about war, etc. It was only a war when it was convenient. So, I mean, according to Eric, he quit. He wasn't told to quit by anybody, but Eric was the longtime play-by-play guy for CZW, and a a little thread that will be going through these early years of Ring of Honor is the the kind of on-again, off-again friendship, rivalry, frenemy relationship that Ring of Honor and CZW has. And when it very first started, I guess according to Eric, it was so hot that he just couldn't feel comfortable working for both promotions simultaneously. I think it might actually even get worse like later in the year when certain wrestlers actually have to leave ROH because yeah. of uh, because of what's going on. But I, I think it gets, I don't want to jump I don't want to jump ahead, but yeah. It it will get worse I think before it gets better and then it'll get worse again and then it'll get better again. But I would say Eric not good uh, the commentary on these two shows not good. But I will say the commentator who comes next made me is making me wish Eric never left and making me want to apologize to him. Hmm. Uh, we'll, we'll see. Yeah, you've watched ahead, so I'm, I'm reticent to say just yet. That, that's the tease for the third episode. Yeah. Okay, so now, finally, first segment of the show, we get a Christopher Daniel backstage promo. And it's just a little promo. But I think what's really impressive about it is Daniels does something I think nobody else can do and something he said he's good at, which is he kind of puts forth like three or four bullet points he's been given in an organic way. Like in the space of a minute or two, he shits on the idea of shaking hands. 
He says Ring of Honor is just another indie to him. He says he could beat American Dragon and Loki in singles matches, even though he lost the three-way. Even works in a cute little catchphrase where he goes, you know, say your prayers, because, you know, fallen angel. And, again, you know, it, it, I'm not going to say it's an all-time great promo, but it was something I don't think anyone else at the roster at this point could do as smoothly and kind of as efficiently as he did. Yeah, it would be weird if you said it was an all-time great promo. I'd be, oh, I'd be, I'd be surprised. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I consider it almost like, just like, it's like an establishing promo, like, like almost like a vignette. It's like, this is the, this is this character, this is what he thinks, and this will inform his future behavior on the next several events. Yeah, like, laying out a bit more, or kind of like, giving you three or four things to chew on rather than just one. I think he was able to kind of keep a few balls in the air, and... Again, I don't think anyone else at this point in the company could do that. That was kind of what he brought to the table more than almost anything. And then we get another great, brief, generic techno soundtrack to highlight video. And then we shift, just because we Ring of Honor knows how much Matt doesn't like generic techno, to generic Cookie Monster vocal metal, <laughs> as we get to see, again, for the second show in a row, every single entrance to this song even though we're going to see all those entrances later even though we bought the freaking dvd and know everybody that's on the card uh i think i would rather hear the techno than the <laughs> which is pretty much uh it's a pretty good impression of what was actually that music was right it's it's either a great impression of someone vomiting and trying to talk at the same time or what that song is um, but I, I'm just gonna go out and say I don't think that uh, the people at RF Video had good taste in music. Uh, it's just as far as it's not in line with what I like. Anyway, I'll say that um, it, it is very much one it, two flavors. You can get your generic techno or your generic kind of scream core metal, and yeah. never the two shall mix. Yeah, I mean they they mix. I think they they mix. But, oh god. But. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know who the audience is that likes to see a highlight video of people entering the ring. But you know what? I will say this. These highlight videos are better than the ones that they have in some of the 2003 shows. Because in some of the 2003 shows, maybe even some later in the 2002 shows, they show a highlight video before the show of clips from the matches that happened during the show. Like, sometimes, like, big spots from the matches. It's like, why would you show spoilers of your own DVD on the DVD? I don't understand it. They were just PWG before PWG. Except PWG is using those spoilers to try and sell the DVD. Again, yeah, Ring of Honor... totally different thing. ...giving away too much when you've already bought it. Like, you don't need to sell me. I'm holding the thing I bought in my hand. But we're going to get a third segment now, and this is the one I'm really looking forward to because it is a yet... Another hit squad comes out to rile up the crowd outside. And they do it just like last time. They play off the Boston crowd versus the New York part of the crowd and get them to chant against each other. They try and tell them they're going to see the best wrestling in the world. They swear. They, um, they're, it is exactly the same as the first one. And I didn't find the first show segment like this to be worth my time the fact that they repeat it note for note on the second one is just head scratching 
there is one single redeeming piece of video gold in this segment, and that is a fan who is simultaneously the biggest Hit Squad fan ever and the person most proud to be from Wisconsin ever, as he is shouting at the top of his lungs, we're from fucking Wisconsin with his buddy, and even the Hit Squad seem to like start breaking into near laughter at how enthusiastic this guy is. He is screaming in their faces how great the Hit Squad are and how they're from fucking Wisconsin. And nothing against Wisconsin. I'm sure it's a great state, but there is nobody in the world who was more proud to be from Wisconsin than this young man. Yeah, I mean, that's probably true, but you know, like... I'd be less embarrassed about the Wisconsin thing than more about him, like, talking about how amazing the Hit Squad are. But, you know, <laughs> hey, the Hit Squad are still going strong, so what can I say there? I, uh, I respect the Hit Squad. But these little segments, I, I don't I think, like, people at ROH, like, we're not quite clear yet on the fact that, like, of, like, what entertainment was. Because, like, I think the whole, the whole video is supposed to be entertaining, and they just show these, and they continually put these clips of the hit squad just kind of like awkwardly walking around yelling things while crowds chant this i'm sure it was kind of cool for the people that were online but it's not fun to watch on tv it's it's awkward and like just like the first one just too long like you could you could, if they were to show like two minutes of this it's fine but they just show them wandering around like at one point they go outside and they see the line, which is, you know, it's a long line, but it's not like some amazing throng of people. And the first thing Monsamex says when he sees it is, holy God. And then um, <laughs> the uh, the white balance is also totally off because there's like a whole blue hue over the entire video. And then at one point, Monsamex is trying to do the uh, the moth thing where like he's like yelling to the crowd to get them hyped up. He doesn't do it as well as moth, but he's like, are you guys ready to see? I wrote this quote down, by the way. Are you guys ready to see? What the hell do they call it? And then and then Moff just like jumps in and just like, and just <laughs> like starts in again. That really happened, and this is on the video. So you know maybe you know start editing a little bit. I don't know. I think they could have figured this out then. I know they're novices at this, but I think watching this in the in the um, in the editing room, you might say, oh, this isn't really uh, fun to watch. So let's not have it. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, like, warming up the crowd, I mean, that's a great idea. And, you know, late-night talk shows have warm-up comedians, but the difference is The Tonight Show isn't showing the warm-up comedian, like, showing the crowd where the exit emergency doors are and telling them 15 minutes of local jokes to get them ready for the show. Like, that's essentially what ROH thought starting the first two, hint, maybe more, shows with, is just, let's show them warm-up, Let's show them warming up the crowd. I mean, it's weird, and also, um, it's uh, it's unending. Like that's again the biggest the biggest thing. Yes, but but I will say this: they started an ROH chant this time, not a Ring of Honor chant. So that's that's new. Yeah, they're they're they are the innovators. Maybe not of violence or stiffness, but of a Philadelphia-based wrestling promotion chanting. So from there. This segment was shorter than the first segment with less homophobia, but maybe we'll get a sprinkle of it later. But oh, by, the, by the way, um, they show the Code of Honor. I know I don't yeah, know if you were going to mention that. I was about to go. Yeah, this is the first time the Code of Honor has um, ever been shown on, on video, not just talked about by the announcers. And we get the five rules, which I guess we should read one more time. One, competitors must shake hands before and after each match. Two, no interfering in matches or having others interfere on your behalf. Three, 
no harming a referee or causing others to harm an official, four, no sneak attacks, and five, any violation in the ring will result in a DQ, which doesn't really seem like a rule as much as just the result of breaking the first four rules. Yes, although I will say, because um, I wrote this down, what it actually said was any violation will result in an DQ, which we all oh, know that yeah. an should not go before a consonant sound. But You know, honestly, looking at my notes, I wrote it the correct way in an DQ, and I just assumed it was my own typo. <laughs> Nope, they it was their typo, and it was stupid. <laughs> and finally, one last segment, and the best segment before the start of wrestling, we get a brief little segment where Quiet Storm is backstage practicing a new hold on his new tag partner, Chris Devine, and uh, American Dragon happens to walk by backstage and overhears them, and he decides he's going to show uh, Quiet Storm how it's done. And he puts uh, Divine in the hold and really clamps down to a kind of a comical exaggeration. And Divine freaks out in pain in the hold. And Dragon's like, no, you twist it here and you torque it here. And Divine just sells it huge. And then Quiet Storm kind of has this shitting grin on his face. And it's just like, thanks, man. And it was just, it was goofy, but the good kind of goofy, in my opinion. And just a real kind of funny little segment that also kind of got over you know it put over that dragons on this other level of kind of technical wizardry of all the backstage promos and skits that we've seen so far this is this was my favorite easily i just yeah. it just it puts it's a good bit of character building first of all not just for for dragon but for uh, these other guys too and it it kind of you know maybe this is maybe some people will think this is bad but it it sets up a hierarchy for the company like you know like dragon is just so much better than everybody else and this shows that it gives him a little bit of personality so i see this and i'm like i don't think brian danielson was ever like you know bereft of personality you know like i think that he always had a little glimmer behind his eye more so than a guy like malenko or benoit did you know i I, you know he, he has a little bit of a he had some comedic timing um you know, he just, I don't know, he just, he had something about him even before he was really skilled in doing, like, promos and stuff. He's clearly hamming it up here, and he's yeah. very aware of it, and he's good at it, you and know? he has a sense of humor, which is, I think, yeah. the one different, one thing that you didn't see from, like, other kind of just, like, technical, vanilla, midget types, or whatever you want to call them. Mm-hmm. So, I was a little too enthusiastic of a mm-hmm, but I was uh, clearing my throat at the same time. So, finally... We get to the first match of the show. It's the first of three matches in the round robin challenge. And, and by the way, can I just interrupt to say, isn't it interesting yes. how you know this? How ROH, which is you know, de- you know, the whole thing is their company, they're wrestling. You know, it's it's all about the wrestling and all this stuff. Their shows have so many more like skits and stuff before you ever get to the first match than almost any WWE pay per view. Yeah. I didn't time this show out the way I timed out the first show, but again, it's pretty deep into the the DVD when you get to this first match. You know, between the highlight videos, the warm-up, the little brief segments and promos, you're probably 15, 20 minutes into this DVD again. And this is before- true, by the, this is true, by the way, even, like, if you go, like, like, I think pretty much through the entire, like, RF period of the company, they have a lot of these, like little skits and videos and different things before you actually just get to the meat and potatoes. Yeah, I mean, starting it with a little bit of something is good, but they they seem to definitely like to kind of front-load things with a, with a handful of kind of 
things to this nature. I guess part of it maybe is they're just like people that are just like hanging out, waiting for the show to start, and they're just like killing time. It's like let's just record a bunch of shit. Yeah, almost like they're recording too much. But again, that's something I kind of miss in today's indie wrestling. I'd rather have too many of these segments than too little. Even if when they're all bunched together at the start, that's not always conductive to having a great start of a DVD. Yeah, a good wrestling promotion, I think, should be like kind of a little world, right? Like, you know, there's like a little internal universe with all different relationships and things like that. And, you know, this is pretty critical in building that world. They're world building, mm-hmm. as they call it in, uh, in other art forms. Yes, and that's sadly something we're, we've kind of lost. Not to be grumpy old men, I, I do like modern indie wrestling, but I just wish they'd incorporate that a little bit more into this. Yep. But, okay, so the first match in the Round Robin Challenge is American Dragon, Brian Danielson, versus, or it's just built here as American Dragon, versus Christopher Daniels. And Christopher Daniels, surprise, surprise, he wins by submission with a crossface, in 1423, putting him at 1-0 and for the night and dragging at 0-1. and Matt, I've been gabbing a lot to start the show with background, so how about you take this first? All right. Well, I first of all, the first thing I noticed when I saw this is um, Dragon was jacked at that time. Like, if you like his upper body, like, you just, like, if you just saw, like, a close-up of his upper body, like, he has very big shoulders, you know, just, like, big muscle. Like, he just seems like a, like a muscular jacked dude, which I don't think... He really, that was true of him at any other point in his career. Um, but, yeah, the opening sequence was uh, was hot. Um, you know, I think Daniels was holding his own on the mat, you know, uh, but and Dragon was sort of doing the Crippler crossface, I guess sort of like a pre-yes lock, and Daniels flipped it into a pinning combo. I, I thought it was entertaining. I don't know if you noticed this during the first match. Um, Gabe and Rob standing in the background watching the match talking to each other. Yeah, I noticed that in the first show, too, and kind of notable matches. You could see them kind of in the open doors to, the, like, the backstage area, kind of just standing and watching. Yeah, it was I, I, it's kind of cool. Um, story of the match was uh, Daniels uh, working the neck, and I think they did a good job with that. The announcers did a good job of, you know, um, bringing attention to it, but like with everything with them, they did too good a job where they just wouldn't shut up and say the same thing over and over again. But, you know, it was useful to be pointed out and they did a good job they were very consistent with the body work uh, Dragon was very consistent with the selling you know I think Daniel's like he, like if you just watch like he never stopped focusing on the neck you know it was just um, you know just one like neck related move and hold after another and um, Gargulo I think one of his like talking points for the match is that uh, Dragon had never given up ever in his career and then, of course, at the end of the match, you know, so it's his first, I guess, submission that he's ever had. So I think that's a good bit of storytelling. And I thought the match was really good. You know, 15 minutes, this was a really, really good match. Like, way better than, I'd say, any match on the show of the first ROH show besides the last two. And honestly, I might have enjoyed this more than I enjoyed the Guerrero Super Crazy match. Uh, I consider this match, I call this, this is kind of one of my comfort food matches where... It's not the sexiest match, but I consider it to be, like, really kind of stick-to-your-ribs satisfying. Like, it's just, it's a very simple story told really well. Like you said, once Dragon first kind of gets his neck hurt, Daniels almost never stops focusing on it. And Dragon's um, selling of this is excellent. It's there's, there's a couple moments in this where dragon he tries to do a move like one case it's a suplex one case it's the cattle mutilation submission finisher and both times he immediately stops because he can't because his neck is hurt but the thing i love what he did was instead of just like 
doing what most wrestlers would do and go, oh, I can't do the move, and you get countered or something. He immediately, both times, did a different move that didn't involve a snack, which I thought was so smart because it puts over the injury, but then it also puts over, like, yeah, but Dragon's a smart guy. You know, if he can't do a vertical suplex, he'll do a double arm, underhook arm, you know, double arm suplex. If he if he can't do the cattle mutilation, he'll do another submission where he kind of pins the guy's arms behind his back. Like, again, it's another thing along with that opening segment where they're putting over, this guy's kind of like the technical master of the show. And it, it was just a nice kind of clever deviation from how a lot of guys kind of sell a body part. And... I think another part that was really nice was they did really, really smooth mat work at the start without it seeing choreographed. And there is a moment where um, Dragon's on his back and he's in a double knuckle lock with Daniels. And he raises a leg up, kind of like kicks free one of the hands, and then takes both of his legs, puts them over one of Daniels puts it over Daniel's other arm and uses that weight to drag Daniel's to the mat and puts him in the cross face. And the whole thing is done so fluidly and makes such sense. And is so clear to see what he's doing that the crowd actually starts like applauding it, like, like giving almost not quite a standing ovation, but like a, Whoa, that was really cool for something that's, you know, a little bit flashy, but not too flashy. It was just so well done. And one thing I'm getting watching these early Ring of Honor shows is the crowd does actually kind of appreciate mat work more than I thought they would at this era. Yeah, in the very early days, they really, really do. Like, as there are things that I could say that I don't like about these crowds, but their appreciation of wrestling was possibly at its, honestly, at its height in the very first few shows. Because I think they knew that's what they were going for, and like, there was the whole thing was that it was fresh and it was different, and they weren't jaded yet. So it's just like, oh, cool, wrestling. And, uh, you know, I liked that. I liked that that was their reaction. Yeah, it was it, – it's, it, it's one thing I really liked about going back and doing these podcasts is that's one of the first examples of something that kind of broke a misconceived notion I somehow had from those shows the first time I watched them a long time ago where, like, I was completely off about that. And other th- a couple other thoughts about the match. I uh, – let me just see what I had written down. Um I I, uh, I I think this is a great match in terms of I think there's an art to wrestling a match when you know you have to wrestle another match later in the same night. And a lot of wrestlers just go the route of I'm going to wrestle a really short match and we'll, we'll come up with an excuse for it being really short and then I'll do my regular match later. And that's one way to do it. But I thought these guys hit a perfect balance of they gave you just enough and they told a great story, but they also just gave you enough near fall, like big moves and near falls at the end and went just long enough where if that was the only match these two wrestled tonight, you'd be happy. You know, it maybe wouldn't be the best match you think these two could ever have, but you'd be satisfied. But the fact that they give you this match and they're each going to give you another match later on, I think this is a really great match in this. If you kind of add that in, if you kind of grade it on that curve. Well, it also helps that these are two guys that have a lot in their repertoire so they could do a lot and still save a lot. Yeah, absolutely. Especially, actually, I think both guys. Yeah. I think you're, you hit the nail on the head there. Yeah. And you know, even, uh, I think it was, uh, Daniels, he busted out like a pile driver in this match, which is not something you see too often in, in any wrestling these days, or even in 2002. And, uh, you know, and that's just something that's not part of his regular moveset, but it was uh, it's a high spot, and it worked in the match. Yeah, exactly. It's pulling out something, you know, 
that you don't normally do, but you can do it, and it makes sense, perfect sense in the context of a match where you're working over a guy's neck. Yeah. And this match, um, you know, made me think of something that I think will be a theme throughout a lot of this, which is like, you know, there's a lot of ROH stuff in the early days that it's like this doesn't hold up, you know, like the the art form or the tastes have progressed since then. But when you watch the really good guys from ROH in 2002, the, the you know, the Dragons, the Daniels, the Lowkeys, um, I would say it holds up completely to the point where if those exact matches were had now, they would not seem dated in any way. They would seem like, oh, this is, this is the state of the art. Like, these guys, like, they're just so good on, like, a timeless level, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That I, I don't think that there's anything, like, I don't think there's anything about this match that would seem any worse to a live crowd watching in 2017. I think any match that's like this, that's based on just a simple story well told, like, will be kind of in a way timeless because, I mean, a story about a guy getting hurt and trying to fight through it, well, if it's told well, we'll kind of, it doesn't matter what the moves are, you'll get into the story of it. But I think even, quite, the, mo- I think even the moves are... Yeah, the are, moves weren't are, out of date either. Yeah, they're not out of date. And, the, and they're, uh, you know, because I, you know, I think what's great about, you know, these two guys, you know, all three of those, like, top guys, but these two guys, you know... Um, is not only, you know, are they, you know, do they know what to do in the ring, you know, and I, you know, I think Daniels has some stuff that the other two don't have at this point, but they both know what to do in the ring, but their execution is so good, um, you know, and better than most wrestlers that you will ever see, you know, I wouldn't put them like top, you know, 5% at this point, but probably top like 10 or 15% in terms of execution, even then. Um, you know, they're just very smooth, very crisp with what they're doing. And, you know, that makes a big difference. Yeah. I mean, it, it helps you. You never get taken out of them in a match like this because of a spot where you go, ah, eh, that didn't look so great. Like everything is tight and smooth and just on a level above almost everyone else on the show. Yeah. Everything. And it's, it's very yeah. impressive. So yeah, in my opinion, kind of echoing yours, I wouldn't call this a, a great match, but I would call this a really fun, very good match. Like a, very just good a match. just a just a notch below like great, but in a way, it's it's super fun in addition to being very good. And I I always hate when people say, "Oh, it's good, but it's also fun." But I'm saying it here, like again, this is kind of like a personal favorite, even if I realize it's not as great objectively as some matches. And the only thing I'll mention before we move on from this is something I forgot to mention on the first show is American Dragon's theme for the first few shows was the Offspring's self-esteem for the first and, couple for the first couple of years actually. Oh yeah, and um, that song like it's a good song, but if you listen to the lyrics, it's basically about a person who is whipped by kind of their significant other and actually has no self-esteem, and it's the weirdest lyrical choice. And the only thing I can think of now, having read Daniel Bryan's autobiography, where he opens the book talking about how he was tested to uh, have the least ambition of anyone who had ever taken that test, is every time I hear it now, instead of him, the Dexter Holland saying that he's got no self-esteem, I just put my head, you know, I've got no ambition, away. like, I just, like, it's such a weird lyrical choice, but yet... It almost fits for um, American Dragon. Sure. I can see that. <laughs> that's, that's what we call the Joe Gagne no-sell. <laughs> so um, at, after the match, um, Daniels does another little bit of character work where he gets on the mic in the ring, and he kind of 
smugly and hypocritically asks Dragon to shake his hand. And Dragon, being the good egg that he is, does shake his hand. It's just another another little bit of character work where the guy who wouldn't shake hands in the first show, now that he's won, he's more than happy to kind of say, hey, you're going to shake my hand. And I guess the other thing to mention here that's going to become a bit more of a story later in the show is apparently Dragon's eye get busted open in this match. But the problem is the production in these first Ring of Honor shows, like you said earlier, is so washed out. And the cut isn't that big that I couldn't tell until I read a newsletter, a newsletter recap of this show that Dragon had been cut open in this match. Well, I knew because, you know, in the second match, he has the cut. Yeah. So, like, when, like, else, I, when else would it have happened, you know? I, I noticed more, yeah, in hindsight, when they do in the second match and post-show segment, they show, like, a close-up of him stitched up. In that first match, I don't see the cut. Yeah. But, obviously, it did happen in that match. Yeah, it had to have. So... Then we get some more backstage segments. Yay! Um, we get Eric the Towel Boy is backstage shining Prince Nana's shoes with the towel. And I guess because Nana squashed him last month, now he owns them as his rule in wrestling. And segment after that, we get C.W. Anderson's debut in Ring of Honor, where he's backstage before the show. And he says he can beat Joey Matthews and Christian York, who are also debuting on the show, with any partner. That's how good he is. And he randomly picks out Elax, who was a little bit of an indie wrestler at that time, who in the show was seen to be working as a ring crew boy. And he just grabs him and says, you know, hey, I can win with this guy. And again, just they're giving you more of these little quirky segments between matches. Pretty much every match you're getting segments like this. Yeah, uh, I don't really get... Elax or what he's supposed to be, um, but he, uh, I think he was ended up being one of the early special K guys. But I don't know. I don't know how some of these guys get on these shows. Yeah, I, I forget if it was JAPW or CZW, but he does. He did work some shows there. Looking up now, if you want to look up Elax nowadays, you can easily find his Facebook, where he seems to have a very lovely family and. Uh, that's about all I know about Elax, and quite frankly, compared to some other wrestlers, that's maybe all I want to know. Maybe I'll get an angry email later saying, Elax was the great unheralded worker of 2001 JAPW, like, you gotta watch this, and I'll be more than glad to get that email. Matt right. might so not... That, that, if someone is actually angry sending that email, I, uh, I just... I, I'm I a glutton for, for that person. I want that person to be a listener. But... <laughs> Matt's grunt of disapproval. I'll take it. I'll take the hit. Um, next match is the Hit Squad with beating. They squash yet again. Another squash. Second straight straight squash for them in Ring of Honor. They squash this time. Prince Nada and Eric Tuttle, and they are they squash them in a minute fifty one when Mac pins Tuttle after Mafia burning hammers him, and Prince Nada and Eric Tuttle come out with simply luscious. And she is a woman. She is a lady, a girl. But um, more appropriately, yes, she has different chromosomes than us. But more appropriately, same same chromosome. But we we have one that she doesn't have. So oh, so go us. I don't know how biology works. Uh Um, But for those who don't know, simply luscious. I think she later worked a bit in TNA. But she is another student of um, the Texas Wrestling Academy where Spanky and American Dragon and Paul London all came from and Michael Shane. 
And so, of course, since she's involved here, we get yet the yet again the announcers have to tell us because she's from TWA that she drove twenty six hour drove twenty six hours to be here. And it was kind of a strangely honest bit where they tell us that um, she's here seconding Nana and Tuttle because Ring of Honor couldn't find any other spot for her on the show, which is kind of like almost a breaking <laughs> kayfabe moment where you're kind of used to managers being there because in storyline, like they're aligned with them yeah. and they literally just come out and say, no, like she showed up with Rudy boy and the guys and you know, this is what we had. So here she is. Yeah. I don't know how I feel about that. Uh, honestly, it's not really something that really gets you invested in somebody be like, yeah, we just threw these people together. It's uh, she's it's her job is to stand there. Like, you know, I, I don't, I, I don't and know the, how I feel about it. And the weird thing is, reading the Observer's review of this show, um, one of the notes he got from must have been from someone there was, he said, there were also people raving about a Texas woman wrestler called Simply Luscious, who was said to have great charisma. It must now, have been it must have been the people who like were like worked the show. I can't imagine her leaving that much of an impression on the audience based on what she did. It was Simply Luscious, no. <laughs> It was Rudy boy, but yeah, I was just going to say she, um, she doesn't show no charisma, but she doesn't really even get a chance to show charisma. Like, I don't know how watching this show live or even on DVD, you would get any kind of read on her as a talent for Dave to kind of insert into this recap. Like, Oh, people were saying, Oh, she's great. I mean, he literally used the word raving and I don't think there's anything about her performance here to rave about. Unless she gave some like off, camera promo that was like just amazing yeah and even well, i'm watching a bit ahead we get a promo next month from her it's it's again nothing special but we'll see how she develops as we go through these shows but as for the squash itself it's just a i mean it's less than two minutes there's not much to say it's another hit squad squash of colorful characters so it's basically hit serving hit squash hit squash that's a good one um it's basically the the same, the same exact match, the same purpose of the first show's segment, hit squash segment, where it, it's, hey, here's some colorful characters, and the hit squad will come out and beat the crap out of them quickly. And if you thought it wasn't enough like that segment, then the Christopher Street connection come out. And we do not get the insane level of homophobia we got last time, luckily, from the commentator commentary but we do get the same tired kind they're not supposed to be here chance you know we get the hit squad getting all breathing mad like a bulls for, from seeing that christopher street connection walking down and being gay unannounced and then they do something pretty crazy which is they pick up eric the towel boy and they go to throw him onto Nana and the Christopher Street Connection who are outside the ring. Except the Christopher Street Connection and Prince Nana are nowhere close to being in position to catch them, to catch Eric the Towel Boy. And Eric the Towel Boy just splats kind of frighteningly bad looking on the hardwood gym floor. And you can see all three guys dive immediately to check on him. Dave and the Observer afterwards says he hit hurt his hip pretty bad on this. You know, he's lucky he landed kind of flat and not on his head because he could have been killed here. And just, I don't know who you blame for this. I would put it on the hit squad for 
when you see that no one's that close to where they should be, don't chuck the guy anyway. And then they to finish up the segment, they have to even hit the same note as last time where instead of putting Alice in Danger through a table on the first show, they throw Simply Luscious onto the crowd. And thankfully, this time, they're kind of prepared to catch her so she doesn't die. Yeah, uh, well, a few things about all that. Um, for one, you know, I think it's just the thing with Eric Tuttle. It's just some stuff you get when you have indie wrestling and you have guys that are not super experienced. Like, this, that stuff's going to happen, unfortunately. Um, it's bad. Maybe they should not put guys like that in positions to be thrown onto concrete floors. You know, maybe so maybe it's the booker's fault for even booking that, or whoever you know agented the match, if that's even a thing they did. Um, yeah, uh, it is interesting to note that you know beyond the homophobia and stuff, there also apparently is a rule in 2002 wrestling, which actually you know living through 2002 wrestling is not exactly surprising that a woman has to get beat up on every single show by a man. Like that's that's like a, a holdover from ECW, which was a, definitely a thing. And I think that probably actually lasts for a long time, where it's very common for women wrestlers or that seconds to get manhandled. And that's really bad also, by the way. Like, you know, we, we ranted about the homophobia stuff, but, you know, the, the beating up women stuff is something that, you know, was, maybe even is, accepted in wrestling. And, you know, it's really, it's not cool, you know? Like, it's not... You know, I mean, if, if you're presenting them as, like, two equal athletes, that's one thing. But clearly you have these little w- women that are just getting, the sh- you know, chucked or put through tables and stuff by male wrestlers. That was never okay, and it's still bad. Um, I know it's, it's a lot more in line with what we've seen, so it's not as, like, immediately outraging as the commentary on the first uh, ROH show. But I think it is worth noting that it's probably not the best thing. Yeah, and... I know Bubba Ray Dudley will get mad about this because he hates this phrase, and I know he's a huge fan of the show already. <laughs> but, but uh, he's also a huge fan of putting women through tables. Yeah, I, I mean, and he's a guy who hates this phrase. But this was cheap heat. Like hitting women is the easiest kind of cheap way to get a reaction, and it does. Like you were saying, it feels very ECW-ish. It's just we're not even going to try that hard. We're just going to. Pr- kind of like directly press your button you know the easiest one like isn't this shocking gay people isn't this shocking we're we're you know we're throwing women around like there's nothing clever about there's nothing inventive about it it just it just kind of feels like a trained monkey getting his food pellet like here's the spot we know you're gonna clap for and the uh the 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 homophobia stuff like you said it wasn't quite as over the top as uh, as it was on the first one, you know, certainly like it was much more like just with like like what I was saying before. It's much more in line with what we're used to in wrestling. You know, kind of like the the juvenile comments, like when they came out and um, you know, there's like like the, oh, maybe they're into getting beat up by the hit squad in like a sadomasochistic way. You know, like just making like stupid, immature comments about it. You know, that still are ridiculous. But it, but it wasn't like the angry like oh we just hate them so much homophobia from the first one where I was like whoa what the hell is going on here it wasn't quite like that yeah it it was a noted step back yeah but they still did a lot of like you know you know they dwelled on it for a long time you know when they were all lying in the in the um in the aisle way they had the hit squad like lying with their heads basically in Eric Tuttle's crotch. And um, and then like the commentary was like, oh, you know, look where their head is. That's disgusting. And then <laughs> Angus Carino's like, look, he's not even worried about it. That must mean he likes it or he's had it happen to him before. It's not his first, you know, like just like stuff like that. And it just goes on forever. And the Hit Squad come out and they like they shake everyone's hands in the aisle. 
Um, but, you know, like, so Beyond the Homophobia, it just wasn't really entertaining, you know, because it was just, like, very long uh, mm-hmm. and just, like, this long squash segment, basically. And I think my big problem with it, sign that's a theme on this show, is there's a lot of segments on the show that are just outright retreads of what was on the first show that don't really advance angles. It is literally just doing the same thing, maybe with slightly different players or a slight alterations to what happens in the segment. Like, the point of the segment doesn't further any feud. It is the same thing as the first show. It is Hit Squad beats up, like, colorful characters. and It's time-filling. If, if the point of that the first time was to be generous, if to be generous to Ring of Honor, if the point of the first show when they did this on that first show was to go, hey, you know, this is a, a visual example of Ring of Honor not being a place for colorful characters and like over the top gimmicks. When you do that same segment on a second show, at that point, you're not you're not telling us anything. You're being hypocritical. Yeah, that's exactly true. That's exactly what they were doing. Um, and yeah, and then they kept going with that. They, in, in the in backstage, they had like they kept going with this skit where the Christopher Street Connection were giving mouth to mouth, or they were going to give mouth to mouth to Eric Tuttle, and then Nana comes and like saves him. I actually thought like, hey, you know, Nana, he's really looking out for this kid. That's what how nice of him. Um, but uh, but and then they go and they give mouth to mouth to each other. You know, certainly you're right. This is like, of course they're they're saying we're not doing colorful characters, and then they continue to have these colorful characters. Which, by the way, I don't think there's anything wrong with having colorful, colorful characters, but it is certainly the opposite of what they claimed that they were doing. Yeah, and it, again, this is the second straight show where I'll say Christopher Street Connection are great at being the Christopher Street Connection. They're just, I don't think this is the right promotion as a fit for them at this point, and I don't think, you know, the way they're portrayed is the best way. It's kind of a cheap, easy way to portray them. Yeah, Buffy is really good. He's a really good performer. Um, yeah. You know, I, I would actually be curious to see more of them, but I don't know how offensive almost everything they've ever done would be. So <laughs> I, I'm not sure. Next is the Boogie Knights are backstage, and this is something you saw that I completely it completely went over my head, but I should have realized what this was. One of them brags to the other that he took a shit in Eric's bag, and it t- I didn't register until you told me later that he's talking about Eric Gargiulo's bag, and this will come into play later. And the thing I love, this segment I think is horrible and great at the same time. One of the things that makes it great is one of the Boogie Knights replies to being told that the other one just took a shit in Eric's bag with the words, that's all well and good, but we got a lot worse things to worry about. And then he goes on to talk about how the natural born sinners are looking for them with chainsaws. And I just love the idea of like, Look, man, it's great that you took a shit in that guy's bag. We'll we'll celebrate later, but uh, someone's looking to kill us right now. That's all well and good. <laughs> <laughs> That's all well and good. But I, so, I, I, I thought the reason I so I noticed it because like I just thought the way I think it was uh, Drake who said it. I think it, I just thought it was so so funny because the way he, he was just like, I took a shit in his bag, bro. What, what a rib! That's classic. I was like, <laughs> like, I couldn't tell if he was like if they were making fun of like ribs or they were just like sincerely being like, that's a great rib. Yeah, he. There was something. This segment is, I would say, very watchable. There's something <laughs> about the performances that are just on that borderline between sincerity and not. And the segment continues. They decide to immediately go looking for the Natural Born Sinner's famous chainsaw. And they think they find it in a locker room, but instead it's a decoy using, in part, the rubber chicken. And once they grab the rubber chicken, 
they hear the actual chainsaws and go running back up the stairs, at which point we get another iconic line where one of the boogie knights goes to the other, you still got the chicken, right? They can't beat us without that. And it turns out that they had dropped it in fear. And so that's the whole segment. And it's funny. Like I, I should say it's horrible, but it's so ridiculous that I have to admit I had a good time watching. Yeah, I like the Boogie Knights. Yeah, I but, but they are. Uh, I think that they are fun performers. I haven't seen a ton of them outside Me, of Ring of Honor. Honestly, I haven't seen. But, any, I haven't seen any of them outside of these two shows or whatever other shows they've been on. But as these kind of over the top kind of just goofball New Yorkers who love pulling cra- classic ribs, you know, they they're great. It's classic, bro. <laughs> Finally, that New York accent. Um, and then we get one last little int- quick introductory promo from Christian York and Joey Matthews. Obviously, um, you might know people would probably know Joey Matthews more as half of Eminem in WWE, and he still worked there as an agent or something. I think up till recently, Christian York would go on to work a little bit in TNA. They had, they were kind of indie veterans on the scene at this point, you know, kind of of the era. I think they had a little bit of time right at the end of WCW. They were kind of, you know, part of that group of, like, Scoot Andrews and guys that were kind of before the indies really took off post-WCW and ECW. Weren't they in ECW at the end? Oh, ECW. I mixed it up. You're right. Thank yeah. God you're thank God you're here, man. I know. That, that, that would have been, that that been a disaster. Yes, we'd have to do corrections. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, it'll shorten the corrections section so much that you're here. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, there's not really nothing to this promo. It's a very generic introductory promo. The only things I took for it, from it is Christian York looks a lot like Jimmy Ray facially, and his white boy dreads are some of the most regrettable hair decisions you'll see of this era. Yeah, although the, then didn't uh, Joey Matthews... Uh Oh, I guess he did the braids, not really the, uh, the yeah. dreads later on. But um, it's weird to picture. It's like it's hard to picture this Joey Matthews as the same guy as like Joey Mercury, who was like a pushed character in WWE for a long time. It's 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 kind of it's like it's hard to reconcile those two people because he seems so indie right here. Yeah, and, and you know he's looked at I think by guys who worked him, kind of the younger guys who worked him in WWE, as this kind of uh, you know really smart hand that knows kind of the intangibles and i don't know if he's at that point quite here what we do get is we get our next match which is joey matthews and christian york beating cw anderson and elax in 705 when york pins cw after they hit their problem solver kind of assisted ddt where one guy drapes kind of the legs over his shoulders and the other guy kind of grabs the head and does the ddt and um, maybe it's just because at this point in the show, we had been about 45 minutes with one real match, but I kind of didn't hate this. Like I thought this was for seven minutes, a uh, fast paced kind of TV quality wrestling match. I thought everyone was trying really hard to make a good first impression. I, uh, Elax doesn't do much, but he does pull out a, uh, a, a nice top rope drop kick. CW, um, is takes most of the match and he has some good looking offense and I don't think it's anything, you know, that you're going to ever remember seeing, you know, a week after we watched this, but it, it exceeded my expectations by a little bit. 
Yeah, it was all right. Um, I, I thought, you know, when Elox was in, it was a total squash. And But I thought Anderson's offense looked good. It's interesting, though, the context in the sense that, like, just, what, a year, year and a half earlier, um, C.W. Anderson was, like, one of, like, the hot new guys in ECW, like, that was going to, like, have good matches and stuff. And he, you know, in ROH, he's really never treated like somebody who can actually, like, have the top-tier matches. So it's interesting just, like, in that year and a half, the difference in what the expectations were in a smaller promotion as far as, like, what would make a top-level worker in that company. Because I'm not wrong, right? Like, C.W. Anderson, when he was, like, starting to get pushed in ECW near the end, he was like, oh, this is one of, like, the good, the new good workers, right? Yeah, I, I think he was going to be leaned on probably if ECW had stayed to be kind of one of those... He probably would have gotten maybe something a little bit like the Lance Storm spot of kind of like this is the kind of mid-card, upper mid-card quality worker kind of role, I think. And one thing to mention about C.W. Anderson is I don't know how big a role he was going to get in in Ring of Honor, but this will be the last time we see him in Ring of Honor for quite a while, although he will come back because apparently Ring of Honor got pretty pissed at him because this match, I guess, was supposed to set up a different... C.W. Anderson, um, Matthews, and York match at the next show, but C.W. had a booking at 0-1 on the same date and uh, did not decide to uh, tell Ring of Honor that. And the resulting, I guess, kind of heat from Ring of Honor keeps him away, not forever, but he'll make a few more appearances down the line, but this was, I guess, apparently supposed to lead to the start of a feud. I see. Well, the one thing that, that he did get to do was he had to get to do an angle where after the match, he blames Elax for his loss and beats him up, even though he lost fair and square. So that I guess that makes him uh, a heel. Yeah. And it, it's the typical finish where Elax is on the apron, you know, CW gets whipped into it. He hits Elax and then he walks into the finisher. So, you know, it's not really like even Elax cost him the match, but I guess that's the kind of stuff a heel gets mad about. Right. And, after the, I, I think the booking for this, you know, it's it seems weird to evaluate the booking of C.W. Anderson and Elax versus York and Matthews, but yeah. I'm going to, which is I hate this kind of thing where the heel here make this big kind of braggadocious challenge where you know I can beat you two with any partner. And then he loses with said partner. And I realize we're supposed to say, oh, he's such a hypocrite when he blames the guy he lost with. But it's one of those kind of booking, I've seen this elsewhere, where nobody wins. Because CW just comes off as this idiot who was way too cocky and was proven wrong. And York and Matthews don't get full credit for a win because they won basically a handicap match. So no one really gains anything. Like It's just the story of a guy who made a promise and couldn't live up to it. And maybe the people around him mildly benefit from his failures, which is kind of the story of my life, but not the thing I want to see on wrestling when I'm trying to escape from my life. Well, now, see, you are giving little pieces of information about you, just like you said you would. You can't steal my identity with that one. That's yet. true. You can't. Not yet. Um, yeah, but no, that's that's a good point. I did not think it through that much. Um, but you're. But that's a... Uh, yeah, I, the, I think they just did not put that much thought into the booking of these things. Yeah. Again, this match was just generic fast action with all the guys trying to hit stuff for seven minutes. Elax not doing much. Most notable thing is Elax wears a got poop shirt and he really wants you to know that. And that's 
that's about it. So because Got Milk was still all the rage in two thousand two. <laughs> oh, I love those magazine ads. <laughs> but Z- next, we get another little brief po- promo from Xavier, where he talks about um, Scoot Andrews legitimately broke his leg, is I think his tibia between the first and second Ring of Honor show. So he will not be rematching him. Instead, he'll wrestle the debuting James Maritato. Now, let me just say real quick about the Xavier promo. Um, do you fan? F- it was very over the top, like gracious, gracious babyface. Do you think that was intentional because they were uh, setting the seeds for like a heel turn that he was going to have later on? I think it might have been over the top to try and throw people off because we'll see a little bit later a segment that tips kind of. I think. I think we'll get to it not too long from now, but there's a little nod, I think, later in the show that kind of sh- plants the seed where I think Gabe already knew on show two that Xavier was going to turn heel. Yeah, I think so too. And then we get James Maritano's promo where he talks about how since ECW died, he's been working as little Guido all over the place, but it's time to go back to his roots where he used to work for a big shoot-style company and then there's this funny, awkward moment where he does this thing wrestlers do sometimes where it never really works out great, where instead of just saying that he worked in UWFI, he goes, I used to work in this group. And then he goes to reach down to put on a shirt and kind of it. I just don't think it's ever a good look when you stop at a angle mid sentence to put on a shirt. And it's just a generic shirt with the letters UWF on it. <laughs> and it's just like UWF, like I, like I. UWFI International. And, you know, that was a cool group. You know, I know people sing the praises of it, but just the way it was done, it seemed kind of corny. But, you know, again, a way to introduce a guy, they're trying to, you know, give him a little bit of an introduction of, hey, he's not going to just be, we grabbed a little Guido from ECW. We're going to try and reference his past and give him, you know, his old name back and. I, I appreciate the effort, you know. Yeah, I do too. Although, wasn't he called James Stone in UWFI? Um, I'm not sure. Well, I've definitely seen matches of him in UWFI as James Stone. So I guess it is possible that he worked under both names, but... Yeah. Um, that's So that's about it for the segments. And next we go to Xavier wrestling James Maritato. And yet another short match on this show, which is kind of a pattern for early Ring of Honor... Xavier beats James Maritato in 7-13 with kind of a, just he counters a move into kind of a bridging cradle and kind of gets the flash pin. Uh, um, Matt, you want to start us with this one? Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't have a ton about it, but like, I um, I think that he uh, he works great, but I think that, you know, I know people like Xavier, but I think his offense feels contrived. Like, um, like just like every move he does has some sort of like, I don't know. There's just something inorganic about the setup. I don't know if, if you felt the same way. Like, he does this, like, springboard handstand on the rope into a, an attempt at a top rope uh, Rana, but Maritato catches him and turns it into a top rope Boston Crab, which is cool, but it, it's like almost every move that Xavier tries to do is some sort of similar level of contrivance. Um I do think that the Oriental Scorpion that Maritato did is a really cool move. Um, mm. But I just think, like, the match, you know, the, like Dick said, Maritato worked really well. And the, I think, you know, the moves, like, were well executed. But I thought that it just felt very disjointed because a lot of what Xavier did 
was I don't know. It just felt like it just didn't didn't flow to me. I don't know how you felt about it. I, I thought it was a very average, you know, short match. I, I would actually put it a little below the previous match, which I wouldn't have guessed on paper that I would do that. But I agree with you about uh, Xavier's offense. The way I would put it is his offense doesn't really form an identity. Like, you hear the announcers a lot will talk about how Xavier has this martial arts background. But other than, like, some jumping knees in the corner and the occasional kick, like, his offense just seems kind of like a mishmash collection of just stuff he thinks might be cool. It, It doesn't really... You can't really tell who Xavier is by just looking at the moves he does. And he's a guy that doesn't really have a strong identity apart out of the ring either. Yeah, but I, I do think he just his stuff feels very indie more so than a lot of the other guys. Yeah, you know that. You know, other than of course the uh, the SAT crew. Um, but yeah, I just think there's something very indie about it. And he even he wins with this kind of like awkward like jump over, roll back like pinning combo thing. It's kind of hard to explain, like a backwards bridging pinning combo over his legs but he gets to it in kind of like a very awkward way mm, and, and this is a another match where i would say it's a very average match and i think xavier for the second straight show he's the worst guy in the match not that he's horrible but i think scoot and maritato both outshine him and he's the guy getting the push and one thing in hindsight there's not much to talk about this match but i think i wonder if if they knew that he was going to turn heel soon down the road, if maybe him getting wins, but kind of these fluke wins where, you know, the first show, Scoot Andrews hits his finisher on Xavier, but Xavier's foot's under the ropes and Scoot doesn't realize that, and then he has a tantrum and Xavier wins. Then the second show now, you know, Xavier kind of gets a, a flash kind of pin from this bridging roll-up. I wonder if they were kind of doing those finishes by design to kind of go, you know, we're getting him wins, but we're getting him kind of these cheap lucky cr- yeah cheap wins yeah I, I so, think I think that's I think that's definitely what was happening that's if I were to guess I mean if that's intentional that's actually a nice little kind of subtle way of building a guy up while still kind of staying true to what his character will become yeah definitely they hug after this match by the way and I and I thought like hey I don't know if this match really reaches the level of like I gotta hug this guy but yeah. Um, yeah, just like to feel so emotional after that match. It's like, hmm, I don't know, maybe raise your standards a little bit. I don't know. Yeah, if either of these first two Xavier matches in the Ring of Honor were to try to kind of showcase him, you don't really you don't really get a showcase performance. Yeah. But next we get I'm going to lean on you for the background on this one, which is okay. we get we get a clip of Pennsylvania State Athletic Commission employee Frank Talent. And Frank Talent has given the Ring of Honor roster a pep talk. He's asking for no blood, no cursing. He, you know, he wants the bell to be rung immediately if he sees blood or cursing, and there may not be pay for that wrestler if he sees that darn chicanery. And the whole point of the segment is basically to kind of show Spanky in the background wearing headphones, brushing his teeth, mocking him. The only thing I really took from Spanky's performance is his brushing technique needs a lot more circular motions and less side to side, you know, that's, and, and I guess Matt, I'll let you take it from here. If you want to kind of explain a little bit of what Frank talent is, even though you're not the resident Frank talent expert or anything. It seemed like Spanky was doing a lot of brushing of like the top of his teeth and the back, but it didn't seem like he was really getting much in the front. Um, besides the whole, you know, needing to do more circular brushing. Um, 
But uh, as far as Frank Talent, you know, I didn't really know much about him other than watching through these ROH things, but I was curious about him because it seemed like for a guy who uh, for a guy whose job was to uh, be the commissioner and regulate, you know, he sure was chummy with the with the with the company as far as actually appearing on their videos, uh, you know, talking to the wrestlers. Definitely watching him at ringside, he seemed like he was a fan of what he was seeing, which is fine. Nothing wrong with that. You know, I think the whole um, the whole concept of the athletic commissions, you know, regulating the wrestling cards, you know, you know, you know, it's probably in some ways a good thing, but it does feel a little bit dated in other ways. Um, so I didn't really have a problem with it, but I was curious because he seems like a character, and it turns out that he definitely was. Um, he apparently has been working uh, for the commission since the seventies, and in, you know was heavily involved. You know, would be at WWF shows, NWA shows, a lot of early ECW shows, and you know he was friendly with the promoters. Everybody you know loved him. Um, apparently, he died about um, about five and a half years ago. And uh, so on, I looked it up on OneWrestling.com. There's a whole article of people kind of giving their uh, their uh, you know their positive thoughts about Frank Talent, and they even included a quote from Ring of Honor uh, founder Rob Feinstein, who says uh, in 2011 when Frank Talent died, he said. Uh, very sad tonight. Frank Talent has passed away today. He played a huge part in the Philadelphia wrestling scene. He was even at my first WWF event in 1983 that I attended, and I worked close with Frank when I ran ROH in Philly. He was a commissioner for the state and often got in the ring and went into business for himself just to entertain the fans. I used to see him as a kid when I was 10 at all the WWF events. Then, when the NWA would run Philly, he was always backstage. He was such a nice guy, like he went out of his way for the kids. So friendly, he was n- and never in a bad mood. He did all of the early TWA shows for Joel Goodhart and early ECW. He did CZW and was a true gem. He also loved, and I mean loved, giving locker room speeches to the guys. I even had, p- had him put into a few ROH spoofs that Jug- Doug Gentry filmed, and I still have them on tape. They were classic. Uh, he doesn't. He doesn't add bro in there. Um, <laughs> I remember we had Spanky rib him too. Every time Frank would see me, he was always so nice to me. I often would imitate his voice just to pop everyone around me. I will never forget the sound of his voice. This is a really sad day for wrestling fans in Philly. The shows will never be the same without watching Frank come out to ringside and talk to the fans. This one really hit me hard. R.I.P. Frank Talent. You will be missed by everyone in the wrestling business. Again, I'll state this guy's job was to like oversee. Uh, the show for the for the state athletic commission. So maybe this stuff isn't really what he was supposed to be doing, but I can't really begrudge him, you know. Yeah, like the little bit of research I did after we talked about him, he he's he seems like a guy that was too chummy for his job, but he seemed to be kind of a character that everyone liked. He it was said he did a bunch of charity work, and um, I don't think this is talking out of school because Dave Meltzer had a very brief one paragraph kind of obituary about him, but he mentioned that uh. One of the reasons Frank Talent was so well-liked was that uh, sometimes he'd help indie wrestling promotions kind of underreport their attendance to uh, pay lower taxes. So, you know, a guy who seemed to like doing favors, maybe being part of the show, maybe a little bit more than doing his job. But that, that goes hand-in-hand hand with a lot of people in the wrestling business. Yeah, it's not like he was one of the doctors, like, giving drugs to the wrestlers. So I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, yeah, I don't think he's, he's, as far as, like, marks who are supposed to be, uh, regulating but are actually enjoying um go he's probably one of the more harmless ones but maybe there's stuff i don't know i, I don't know yeah 
I'm, you know, next we'll get an email from someone saying, oh, you know, don't you know he helped cover up Jimmy Snooka's murder? Or, like, <laughs> then I'll feel horrible. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, damn it, Irv Mushnick, I'm sorry. Thanks for listening. For the um, record, that was, a, that was a joke with that, but yes, I guess, that was any, a joke. I guess anything's possible. But, yeah, so for anyone that sees also, these Jimmy segments... Snooka was not murdered. It was the murder that Jimmy Snooka allegedly committed. Oh, yeah. Uh, or was it? Mm. Think about it. Yeah. But, um... Yeah, so just a colorful character, and we go to another segment of colorful characters, which is the Natural Born Sinners do a backstage promo where Homicide says that they'll literally kill the Boogie Knights. Yeah, then we're going to kill you. Is what it says. <laughs> we're going to kill you. And then Boogaloo tries to have a scary voice and says they'll never get his chainsaw. On a personal note, you will never get my chainsaw. That's <laughs> pretty much how he said it, right? Uh, if I if we can get a cavalcade of Matt vocal characters through the next few shows, that'll make everything worth it on this show. I'll do my best. Okay. But yeah, so just another goofy little, very quick vignette, and it leads us to the natural-born sinners of Homicide and Boogaloo getting their rematch with the Boogie Knights of Mike Tobin and Danny Drake since... On last month's show, they got disqualified for using a rubber chicken. This time, they win a shorter squash this time, 249, which I think is less than half of what their first uh, DQ loss squash was. And it's after Boogaloo pins Tobin after the double-team kind of lariat half-Nelson suplex combo we've seen in the first show. That was a really cool move. And... This is just very. This is a repeat. This is kind of what I wanted last month to be. Although I don't know if I wanted the same thing redone <laughs> yet again. It's another. It's another match on the show that just serves the exact same purpose as last month. It's a, a very this time to by the um, to the point squash where the Boogie Knights get pretty much nothing. Homicide does you know a couple cool things like a double stomp and. The only big thing that's even like noteworthy about this match is Carino spends the whole time of this match talking about the shit that the Boogie Knights left in Eric Gargiulo's bag. And Eric Gargiulo decides to spend the whole match defending it as his lunch that he's saving for later, <laughs> which means that Eric Gargiulo cannot tell the smell of human excrement when it's uh, supposedly maybe two or three feet away from him, probably. Or that's just, I mean, I guess maybe the joke is like, that's what he likes to eat anyway. I don't know. But um, yeah, I, I, you know, if they had done like one or two comments about that, I, I would have said, okay. But the fact that there's like no payoff means they probably shouldn't have spent the entire match talking about it. Um, I'm, I, I don't know if this is like a whole like, like kind of like Vince McMahon thing where like this is what like Gabe or Rob find funny. So the announcers are working for them. Uh, I guess that's a possibility, but it away a lot from the match i would say and you know there's a there's a more famous angle that comes a couple years later involving shit in a bag um infamous i should say um (laughs) but uh i don't understand the point of this um i will say that i did notice during this match more than i noticed the match they were like fuck the yankees let's go mets chance so i was like oh man a lot of this crowd is from new york huh and the hit squad really did a good job of hyping them up yeah, the Hit Squad, every time they do these preambles uh, at these shows, they're always hyping up the New York fans and repping New York and always kind of 
not shitting on the Boston fans, but very much playing them up against New York fans and trying to get dueling chance. Yeah, and like now the the the, uh, the Boogie Knights wore Yankees garb, so that's why they were they were the fuck the Yankees chance. But the fact that then it was responded by yet let's go Mets instead of like let's go Phillies, for example, tells me that a lot of New York people at this show. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, on the first show, we see them go into a bus of fans that are apparently from New York. And it's a pretty. It looks like a pretty full bus of fans. Yeah. yeah. So a, a pretty heavy kind of a New York audience, but but yeah, the the only lasting impression you get from this match is Carino just will not let the shit joke go. At one point, he call he asked Gorgillo if his lunch is a sunny sandwich, which I guess plays off the old story of Sunny getting shit in her bag as a rib in WWF. So yeah, it's just a poop joke soundtracking a squash match. So. <laughs> If you like that, this is for you. If you don't like that, this is not for you. Yeah, I'd say that's fair. Now, am I wrong in saying that this was originally supposed to be followed by an angle where Loke debuts his new partner to get revenge from the first show, but the didn't really work out too well, so they cut that segment from the DVD? I vaguely recall hearing about that. When I tried to look it up, I couldn't find, I couldn't find it, but I do recall that, like, I think that the the original Carnage Crew segment did not go as they wanted, and we get the we do not get any development of that angle on this show. As a result, we get the the payoff will come the next show. Yeah, I'm almost positive that did happen after this match. Just it was not it was not they they took it off the DVD, which yeah. is funny considering some of the stuff they left on. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it. In a way, I'm thankful because there was so much, again, up to this point in the show, there was so much just kind of non-serious wrestling. And I like some of that, but the show is just chock-a-block full of it at this point. Yeah, it starts to get better from here on out, though, I will say. Yeah, we're getting some real matches for the second half here. Uh, Low-key cuts a short little promo to set up his match with Christopher Daniels. Low-key keeps calling it the Ring of Honor. Low-key keeps sounding like a 12-year-old who's trying to artificially mask his voice to order a pizza on his parents' credit card. Like, I very much kind of flashed back to my friend Jonathan on Springfield Road when I was 12. There's another piece of information. Us trying to order a pizza that we, we weren't allowed to get. And that's about it for this segment, which leads to... Re- okay, okay, okay. Tell me, more Sorry, about this. So- Tell me more about this Jonathan character. No, I'm just, I'm just kidding. We can go. He on. was from the wrong side of the tracks and was attracted to my brains and easygoing demeanor. And uh-huh. we had a short-lived friendship and a tumultuous love affair. Okay. But, no, I'm just kidding. That <laughs> but, sounds, uh, sounds good to me. Okay. We weren't friends. Um, everything else is true. So, <laughs> next is the second match of the round robin challenge. Loki versus Christopher Daniel. So, Daniel's second match of the night. Loki's first. And Loki gets the win here in the shortest match of the round round robin challenge, 11.02, when Daniel submits to Key's famous, favorite kind of finisher, the Dragon Clutch, which is kind of like a Dragon Sleeper combined with a Camel Clutch. And uh, Matt, since I went ahead last time, you should get to start this one. It's fair. I don't. I mean, I I thought it was good. Like, I don't have a, a ton to say about it. I don't think it was quite the... Um the level of like consistency is the first uh, round robin challenge match. I don't think it, it had quite of the the same level of storyline. But um, you know, I thought that the you know that Loki just like it's all about in these matches like his offense. Like his offense just looks so good, and he had a really like great kicks. You know, there was a really cool spot where like 
Daniels was on his knees and like kind of like has his arms out and he like kicks the arms away and then spins around and kicks him in the face. Like I think I feel like the match was kind of all about that. I, I I think Daniels continued to look good, but I just thought this was a showcase for Loki. Um, you know, and it was like I said, it was a, it was a really enjoyable match. You know, I, I'd say by far the the least memorable of the three round robin challenge matches, and like the you know, and not you know nothing close to the main event of the first show. But I think it was a really good match. It it, um, it kind of gave you a little taste of what these two guys would be capable of uh, if they were to have like a long form, uh, like full twenty minute singles match. I completely agree. First, I completely agree about the, uh, I think that spot you mentioned where Daniels is flipping the bird and he just so efficiently kicks it away and then rotates right into another kick right to Daniels. That's, I think the best, that's my favorite spot of the whole match. It kind of just puts over like how precise and kind of efficient low keys, just a cold blooded killer. I love that spot, but I would agree too. This is the, this is not a bad match. I would call this good. Not even very good. I would call this good. But it's the least of the three round-robin matches. And with uh, Daniels and American Dragon, I said that's a match where you can tell they're holding a bit back. But it was such a good story, and they gave you enough where if that was their only match, you would have been satisfied. This is a match where it was it was a good match but if this is all you would go, if the, if you had no other low key daniels matches on the show i don't think you would have been satisfied this is not what you would hope for if you would just saw low key and daniels at the top of the card in one match only on a night and i think a big part of that is just it's missing the story of the first match i mean daniels works over Daniels works over Loki's neck a little bit, but not as much as he does Dragon. Loki sells his neck a tiny bit, but not as much as Dragon sells. And there's nothing that really replaces that story. It's kind of Daniels gets a section at the start, Loki gets a section in the middle, and then they kind of get a couple minutes of kind of back and forth at the end. And it's just, it just feels like a match, like a match between two really quality workers, but just something they need to get get over with to kind of move on. You know, it's Daniel's second match. It's Loki's first before he moves on to a much longer match. Um, one thing, one thing I really liked is I noticed in this match, Daniel's has really good kind of comical selling where he doesn't quite Shawn Michaels against Hulk Hogan at SummerSlam it, but like the kind of wobble before he falls down. It's it's that kind of straddles the right side of the line where you can kind of laugh at it without being like taken out of the match. And other than that, the only thing I'll mention is Steve Crino, I think does a real, again, the commentary on this night, not good. We haven't been really talking a lot about it, about it, but, um, Carino at one point here kind of actively works against the match where he says, and maybe he just didn't say the words he meant to say. He says, Daniels is slowing down the match because Loki is a guy where the deeper he gets into matches, the stronger he gets, which makes zero sense because if that's true, why would Christopher Daniels want to make the match go longer? Yeah, I think he just kind of slipped on his words a little bit because they were they they were talking like a mile a minute. So they you know they 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 you know when that happens you know and I know it just from like doing podcasts you get lost in your sentences sometimes. And I think that's probably what happened to uh, 
to Carino. Um, but yeah, I think what you said is true. I do think you know it, the, the the match was. You know, it had a noteworthily good execution of moves, so I think that's something that makes it stand out among other matches that might not be that long or impressive. You know, their execution is just so good. You know, and they still had, like, the, the finisher kick out. You know, uh, Loki kicked out of the Angel's Wings, and he won with his finisher, the Key Crusher, so that was good. The Dragon Clutch. Oh, so, it was so, a submission. Oh, sorry, yeah, I, I just... No, no I wrote, problem. I wrote that down wrong. Um I don't know. Yeah, he has a lot of dragon-based finishers, so it's okay. A lot lot of dragon-based finishers. Um, So, uh, but I did did notice something that I thought was funny, whereas at the end of the match, Daniels was like, I don't want to, you know, I'm going to beat you next time I wrestle you, and this time I'll be for the Ring of Honor title. And the announcers are like, oh my god, what is that? Like, they're stunned at the idea that this company might actually have a championship. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a real notable part, where at the end of the match, Daniels gets on the mic and he he does the same kind of thing he did after the main event of the first show where he starts with a very respectful voice where he kind of acts like he's going to shake the hand and then he switches to the yelling angry voice where like what are you thinking I'm not going to shake your hand like makes excuses and he does you know the classic heel thing where he you know he, last month at the end of the show he said he could have beaten Dragon and Daniels in singles matches now that he's lost to low key. I mean, Dragon and Loki in singles matches. Now that he's lost to Loki, he says, oh, if you weren't the second match, I could have beaten you. So he keeps moving the goalposts and leaves. And then, like you said, before he leaves, he says he won't wrestle Key again until the Ring of Honor title is on the line. And they freak out like, like, they freak out like someone just revealed that a twin brother or something. They, they, they lose their minds on commentary. Like what's going on? Like, we got to find out. Like, you know, I won't be able to sleep tonight if I don't know why Daniels knows about the ring of honor world title. And we don't, but that, this is the first time ever. I believe that the ring of honor world title is mentioned on air. The, the mere idea of the concept, like it's not officially announced before this. Yes, but it should not be surprising that a wrestling promotion might decide to have a world title. Yeah. And again, you know, it's another seed that's being planted for a couple shows down the line. And I should probably say it's for the Ring of Honor title, right? They don't technically start calling it the world title until Samoa Joe defends it in England or something. Yeah, actually, Ring of Honor is very good about that, where they do not put the world in until it becomes a title defended outside of the U.S. Yeah, you're right. Yes. So, um, but yeah, it's, it was good. It was solid. But, you know, they definitely it was just they move right along. And we see our first shot of uh, someone who we'll be talking a lot about over the next few shows. Yeah, we... Um... Well, actually, before that, sorry. I know I, I, was, I skipped over um, a very exciting uh, basketball segment. Actually, there, there's one little clip we get I forgot to mention where we follow um, Daniel's backstage in kind of one of those long, continuous camera cuts that I actually think is... It's kind of cool that Ring of Honor was kind of doing where they were trying to follow guys in and out of the backstage area in these continuous kind of camera cuts and sometimes doing two segments kind of without cutting. And in this one, Daniels is going backstage and Xavier kind of congratulates him. And this is, you know, the first nod, I think, this is what I was alluding to earlier, that maybe maybe Xavier and Daniels, you know, maybe they got a thing going. Maybe, maybe there's going to be a turn in a few shows, you know. And foreshadowing, ooh, and then Daniels goes to the locker room, and he gets chased away by the hit squad and the natural-born sinners, who are all pissed that Daniels won't shake hands with Key or with anybody, 
And, you know, this is something Ring of Honor would do where they would kind of acknowledge that low-key has this kind of posse of New York wrestlers he came up with. You know, they never really form a group at this time, but they definitely don't shy away from that New York connection. And then the camera keeps following Daniels, except then Spanky steals the attention from the cameraman, and he's breaking out dance moves and wants the cameraman to watch his dance moves. So we completely lose track of Daniels, and... I like that Spanky's character at this point was just that he was a goofy spaz. Yeah, I uh, I like it to a point. I think that it, they, they kind of overdo it uh, when he when they actually get down to the matches, but um, but I do but I do enjoy that as well. And then we get to the basketball game, which is just again another quick super tossed off segment where um, Red and Quiet Storm and the SCTE are playing two on two basketball. Red makes a bucket, the SAT get irrationally mad, they throw a basketball at Red, and they storm off. And They quiet storm off. <laughs> they quiet storm off to have a hit squash. No, um, but again, the, these things really feel, a lot of these segments really just feel like they were sitting around probably playing a real basketball game, and someone said, quick, get the camera guy over here. They feel very casual, very tossed off. This one feels almost pointless, but I I'll keep saying this. I appreciate that they make any effort at all. And as long as they're as short as this one, I could. I really don't care at all. Yeah, it's this was they, literally 30 seconds, maybe. When they go on and on and on and on, it's like, all right. Yeah. So now we'll get to the segment I think you were talking about, which is the debut of someone who will be pretty big in Ring of Honor and notable in wrestling. It's Paul London, another Texas Wrestling Academy student, versus another Texas Wrestling Academy student, Chris Marvel. And this match ends in a no contest in 208. And why does it end in a no no contest? Well, we get about two minutes of very fast-paced moves, and it looks like this match might be turning into something entertaining. And Marvel is goes to the outside. London gets on the ring apron. He goes for an Asai moonsault. He hits the Asai moonsault, and immediately you realize there's something wrong. And what we see, once London gets up, what we see is wrong is Marvel's foot is pointing in the opposite direction you want it to point in. It's If you if anyone who's ever seen the uh, famous Sid Vicious injury, or I guess just Sid injury, where he jumps off the second turnbuckle on a pay-per-view and comes down on his one leg and the foot twists completely around, this foot looks very similar to that. It's a very grotesque kind of injury. And you just got to feel for these guys because, again, like we're reminded with every Texas Wrestling Academy student, they came 26 hours. This was their first Ring of Honor match. And reading up on this, apparently Chris had to, Chris Marvel had to get, let me just see what this was. Um, He had to get two pins and a steel plate put in his ankle. And it was going to be six months before they'd know if he could even ever wrestle again. He does wrestle again. And in fact, when I was researching him, he has some, apparently he was booked for, I don't know if that ever came off, but I saw a flyer for a match of a Texas-based promotion that had booked Chris Marvel versus Paul London for December of 2016. So it's a neat little touch. They finally get to have their match. I'm sure they've wrestled a bunch of times if that's if, if Marvel came back, actually. So, um, yeah, I will say this, though. The crowd 
and Steve Carino on commentary were both disrespectful. I think this is one where he could really be like, okay, yeah, being a heel back then, such and such. Because, you know, he was just, like, making jokes and stuff. Like, this guy, like, this was a real serious injury. And he's, you know, I don't think that WWE would be making jokes like that um, on their commentary. I just don't think it's a good look. But also the crowd was disrespectful, too. Like, they were, they were like, holy shit chants while this guy's sitting there with his leg falling off. Like, come on. Like, just... Get quiet for a second. <laughs> I don't know. At least don't don't start chanting things. Um, yeah, it, it was not a great scene. And I think today's wrestling, if we're looking at things that indie wrestling today does better and worse, I think indie wrestling today is a lot more, um, they're a lot more respectful of like blown spots and injuries. They, they're, they're less prone to do the you fucked up or it depends just on being pissed. It depends on where you're seeing the show. On the in the Northeast, you still get a lot of these same asshole like wishes they were in the ECW arena crowds. I know because I've been in them not too long ago. So you really, I think it really just depends. Like if you see that PWG crowd, like they're like super respectful and cool. But the Northeast, you still get a lot of these like asshole type fans. Yeah, like PWG, I, I watch every show of theirs, and for all people can say about some things about the PWG crowd, they you never hear a you fucked up chant. Like no. they they'll never go to that level. And probably, I think on you probably, you probably won't hear people like chanting like whore at women wrestlers, things like that either, and no. certainly nothing homophobic. Yeah, and I think in general that was something that was to be expected in pretty much every indie probably at this time. Like I don't think Chris Marvel would have gotten probably. Maybe it's more pronounced and has lasted longer in the Northeast, but I think that's kind of what you would have seen pretty much anywhere in 2002, probably, to where if Chris Marvel had this happen to him in any location. Yeah, you're probably right. I will say it was interesting seeing, like, because you, you saw Rob and Gabe come out to check on him, and immediately you saw Gabe be like, holy shit, get a stretcher, get a stretcher, get a stretcher, and runs away. So, like, this, that's their, like, real-time reaction as promoters to a wrestler getting brutally injured at one of their shows. It's, you know, it's, it's terrible, but it's fascinating to see. Yeah, this is Gabe's first ever, I would say, on-camera appearance that isn't just him standing in the back of the building. Rob had a little segment with Prince Nana on the first show, but this is, yeah, you definitely get that first taste of Gabe panic where, you know, he's rightfully freaking out. And immediately he just, he comes out with Rob, and I think he only needs to look for like three seconds. He probably just needs to see what we see, which is a foot dangling off a leg, and he immediately just goes back and like, get a stretcher, get a stretcher. Yeah. Um... Next, we get Briscoe's. A, Briscoe's little backstage segment where Jay is there with Mark. They're talking. Jay talks about his match with Spanky tonight. Mark interrupts him and asks if Jay's going to win this time. Jack gets pissed. I mean, Jay gets pissed. And the first sign of heel Mark Briscoe. Yeah. Again, the, the, they're planting some. Even though a lot of stuff is repeating, they're also planting some seeds, and they're certainly planting the seed here of. Mark is 17. He's too young to wrestle in Philadelphia. You have to be 18 or more, I think. And so he just has to kind of second Jay and watch him. And he's not, you know, he's razzing his brother and his brother's getting pissed off. And that leads us to Spanky versus Jay Briscoe. And with Mark escorting Jay to the ring, this gets 11 minutes and 23 seconds. Spanky does not use Jay in a bottle this time. Oh, that is so disappointing. I forgot to mention in the first show, one of the most inspired ring music choices on the first show was G in the Bottle for Spanky by Christina Aguilera. And this time he drops it after one show. Whoever made the choice to cut that, huge mistake, unforgivable mistake. 
But Spanky does win here, so maybe it brought him good luck. He wins at 11.23 when he pins Jay with the slice bread number two. And Matt, you want to start this one? Well, first of all, there's some actual wrestling at the start. Um, and then uh, Jay botches a backdrop over the top. So you still see, you know, as good as he was, he was still a 18 or 19-year-old kid. You know, um, he, just, so he, he, could, he just couldn't get himself over the rope. And he just kind of like ends up, ends up crotching himself and like continues to go over. Um, Spanky drops Jay face first on the top turnbuckle after dropping off the top rope. I thought that was actually a pretty cool but brutal move. I think, um, I thought he looked really good in general. Spanky did. But the dancing and preening and stuff started to get annoying to me. You know, I would have liked to see like, okay, like just like wrestle, wrestle a match. Um, and they eventually do, um, especially when, uh, when the, uh, I guess, uh, Jay kind of like, uh, slingshots, uh, Spanky into the post and Spanky like actually hits his head on the post. And then he goes right into this like high angle back suplex. And when he comes up, you realize that he's busted open badly, uh, from, I guess, hitting his head on the post to the point where like, this is actually like a, uh, one of the, I think one of the worst hard way juices I can remember seeing in wrestling. Um, where it's actually like completely hard way. Can you think of a worse one? I'm horrible with memory for stuff, but yet, yeah, like in terms of accidental stuff, I, I, he moved so fast I couldn't even tell at first if he had hit his head on the turnbuckle or the ring post. But it's one of those things where it's almost like his forehead just explodes. Like yeah. where I was saying for the Dragon Daniels match, the the original kind of production and color quality and balance of the first Ring of Honor shows was so bad, I couldn't tell he was bleeding. Here, you can tell he's bleeding from a mile away, even with the production quality. Like, he blood all over his face after a minute or two. Yeah, he's gushing blood. But I will say the power of blood in wrestling, the crowd gets really into the match at this point. Like, they just are, like... they, they First of all, it gives the match a storyline, which it didn't totally have before that. And, you know, um, Spanky starts doing this springboard dive, like, from one rope to another onto the floor. And, um, and like, that has so much more impact with Spanky gushing blood than it would have if he had just done it on his own. Then, you know, he's a huge Spanky Chan after he, uh, after he kicks out of a power bomb, And then he actually wins with the slice bread number two, so you never have to worry about anyone kicking out of the J-Driller this time. But, you know, I thought this was good. Like, I thought this was a probably... I probably liked it better than... Uh, even though the execution wasn't as good, because of the drama and stuff, I liked it better than Loki versus Daniels. I would put this a little bit lower. I would say this is above average, but nothing special. I would say... I would put it below the three round-robin challenge matches, but I would put it above everything else on the card. Um, it's, it's something where both guys exhibit some good moves, but they don't really have anything else here. Again, it's another match where they just don't quite have the intangibles yet. They're that one step away from kind of getting the comfort level where you can kind of not just do the moves, but think about what you're doing between the moves. I completely agree. I think this match really picks up with the blood. I think they kind of, I don't know if they did this as a response to the blood, but there's definitely seems to be more urgency immediately from when the blood starts. Like they start picking up the pace and getting a little bit more intense. And you can, like you said, you, you can feel kind of the crowd, their energy kind of change a little bit when they see the blood. And I think one thing to note in this match is Gabe and Rob, I would have actually probably been more entertaining to see them when 
they realized the blood was happening because I'm going to get to a little bit from the observer from reporting on the show, and I'll quote Dave here. Spanky was bleeding all over the place, and even he wasn't sure why. Belief is that when he took a half Nelson German suplex in going over, his own knee hit his head and split it open in the middle. At one point, there was fear that the athletic commission would shut down the show after Marvel's leg injury, as he apparently said if another guy bled bad, they would stop, in particular if Dragon busted open earlier and scheduled to come out, bled bad. So, in actuality, like they might have been lucky that this show wasn't stopped, because... Dragon bleeds in the opening match. And remember, Frank Talent told the wrestlers not even to swear. I believe on another show, he tells them not even to spit. So you can you have to imagine he's not he's not fond of blood. Or, and so we get, or he was just trying trying to sound like a tough guy and didn't actually mean any of that. Which I don't think that you can dismiss that possibility. Well, wh- wh- whether or not what the actual written rules are, we obviously know that he didn't enforce them probably because. Right. Even if there was fears that the show would be shut down, we get Dragon Bling in the opening match hard way. We get Chris Marvel having a gruesome ankle break in a freak accident. And then the very next match, we get Spanky with a horrible gusher, like accidental hard way. This is so, the same town that had CZW shows at this at the ECW arena. ECW shows, like, do you really think that they were going to get shut down for a couple of, uh, you know, hard way juices? Well, I mean, again, I could see Dave being fed information, but I don't know what the, uh, I don't know what someone would have to gain from making up a fake they were going to shut down the show story. I don't think they were making it up. I just think that the commissioner was like, I'm going to shut it down, but didn't really mean it in any way. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I could see that being kind of a power trip. Like, I just wonder how, if Gabe and them were really free, if maybe they knew Frank, like, ah, Frank's just bullshitting. He'll never do it. Or maybe Gabe was having like a famous freak out and back pacing and being like, oh God, like, because again, remember, according to Dave, they said, if another guy blood bad, they would stop the show and and dragon still has to come out and wrestle another match with a stitched up eyebrow. So the very real possibility could get broken open. Yeah, I, I, you know, like, you know, I'm sure that, you know, I don't know what I'm talking about. So I, it's just like what I feel as common sense based on like just seeing so many wrestling shows that took place in Philadelphia. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, you would. Before yeah, and, think before about, and after this. Yeah, you, you think about ECW too. It, it's just, there, there's, so, if anyone know again, at through the years at gmail.com, if anyone knows more about the Pennsylvania State Athletic Commission and Frank Talent, or on any of the message boards I talked about us posting at at the top of the show, I would honestly be really fascinated in kind of learning about any of kind of the behind the scenes stuff, because that seems like the kind of bureaucracy and, and like, just the way things worked in them sound really kind of fascinating to me, and I would love to learn more about that. Yeah, if this was, like, Maryland, I would buy it, because I know the history in the 80s of, like, the Great American Bash, like, match being stopped because of, like, a little bit of blood on Luger, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. But going back to the match, uh, I think I like it a little less than you. I, I did, you know, there were a few big moves. I did, like you said, I, I really noted that Spanky does this move where he top, jumps from one top rope along the corner to the other top rope, then to the floor. You know, it, it it looked like what it was, which is two talented guys that had room to grow still. Yeah, I for me, the, the drama at the end brought it into, like, the pretty good match range. Uh, I just, I just, I, I liked the intensity there because you didn't see that too much on most of the matches. 
on this or the first ROH show. So that's what made me maybe like it a little more than you. And I think it was good booking too, because if you look at who, if you if you think that um Daniels, Dragon, and Key are all going to stay stuck together for this show, who were the two best guys on the undercard other than maybe Amazing Red, which was Jay Briscoe and Spanky? So, I mean, even if this match didn't turn out to be fantastic, like I think Gabe or whoever made this match, you know, it's the smart booking if you're trying to eke out that fourth good quality match on the show to go. These two guys give us our best shot at this point. Yes, agreed. So, post-match, uh, Mark Briscoe's a real dick, and he taunts Jay, saying that he's 0-2. Jay's not happy, and again, we're just building up that a little bit. And then we get a segment I think you, I know I know that you and I both really enjoyed, which is Gabe is in an office or something with some other, I guess, Ring of Honor RF video employees on just an old-school computer, cluttered desk with blank VHS tapes, and they're looking at the original Ring of Honor website. And there's a poll for who do you think the best Texas Wrestling Academy student is. And the choices are American Dragon, Spanky, Michael Shane, Shooter Schultz, and Lance Cade. And Gabe and co. have a quick, like, five-second discussion and decide to pick Dragon. And Gabe's just saying, like, yeah, Dragon's great. And just real offhandedly, which I thought was cute. Yeah. And then Dragon is in the lead at this point with 64% of the vote. <laughs> and this is, uh, again, just, this will come into play a little bit later in the show. Well, right at the end of the show, actually. It, I actually like something that seems so random. This actually will turn kind of into an angle that keeps going for months actually in some form yeah i I do think the presentation of it like that their choice was funny because you know most wrestling promotions wouldn't have a problem with being like we ran this poll and here are the results but then they they have to actually just do it in this like cutesy way of like that there's just a bunch of bros hanging out looking at the looking at the uh website and and voting on it themselves i thought it was uh it was a funny uh way of going about it well, you know, I mean, Matt, you do this all the time where you sit in a chair and you get three or four of your best friends over and they don't sit in chairs. They just kind of like scrunch down and crouch around you and you'll load up WWE.com and just start looking for the polls. I mean, I mean, I know that's what I do at my house because, you know, chairs are valuable. And I don't want to wear them out. I got to ration out the chairs to my best friends. And You're chair worthy. And, and dudes love clicking polls. <laughs> and to be a little more serious going back to what you said earlier about how ring of honor was willing to establish a hierarchy i think some companies wouldn't have wanted to like show that like hey american dragon at this point has 64 percent of the vote like i think a lot of promotions wouldn't want to cause drama or anything but they were just willing to put out there like clearly hey even we who are like running the company we believe dragon's the best at this point so does and so do the majority of people they they weren't they weren't going to shy away from that. They weren't going to act like let's keep everyone happy by acting like everyone's got a shot here. True that. Okay, so we're getting deep into the card, and we get. Oh, I can't believe I have to. Uh, it seems like I always go first on the bad matches tonight, but we get. You can go first on the good one. No, no, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna stick to the either or. Uh, without order, Matt, we fall into anarchy, but. We get the SAT of Joel and Jose Maximo versus Red and Brian XL versus Divine Storm, Chris Divine and Quiet Storm, in a Lucha, Lucha Libre style exhibition tag team match. And Red first, elim- it's an elimination match. 
as I just said, I didn't need to repeat it again. Uh, Red pins Quiet Storm after Shooting Star Press, but then one of the Maximos, I honestly couldn't tell which, rolls up Brian XL for the win in 12-13. And this match, if you had seen the six-way single elimination uh free-for-all kind of match, the ultimate, ultimate aerial assault or whatever they called it, on the first show with these same six guys, you've basically seen this match because it's very similar even though it's a three-way tag. It's six guys who were the designated kind of high flyers of Ring of Honor at the start doing kind of sloppy, cr- frantic high-flying that doesn't age well. There, I would say this match is a little bit um, more exciting than the first show's match, but also at simultaneously, I would say a little more sloppy and botchy. Um, Amazing Red in particular, who we all see as kind of like the star of these matches, of this class of people. He outright slips on the ropes in this match. He uh, does his infrared kind of twisting splash and almost completely misses a guy. Brian XL does like a forward flipping leg drop where he basically sits on a maximo and looks like he could have really hurt him it's just a botch filled well not a botch filled but just a kind of ugly looking match that ages poorly and it ends with a dissension because brian xl and red cover the ma- um, have one of the maximos beat they dive to cover him at the same time brian xl shoves red red gets mad and shoves brian xl XL gets hit with something, gets rolled up by one of the Maximals. I could barely even remember it, even though I just watched it not too long ago. And that's the end. And this is building up, again, I thought really stupid. They keep building up dissension to guys in a promotion that's two shows old. Like, you can't assume that we've watched these guys in other promotions. Even though you tell us that they're students and friends, the idea that they keep doing this, like, oh, you know, all these friendly rivalries keep happening and these guys team together in other places like i just don't care you haven't given me enough to yet to invest with these guys and yet they keep building these kind of frenemy rivalries in this with these six yeah and also just like the stuff is not good enough to care you know the certainly the promos aren't good and the matches aren't good did did you remember if this match is longer or shorter than the one from the first show first show was either i it was somewhere between like 15 and 18 minutes. So this one at 12, 13 is shorter. Yeah, it feels shorter, which is what the one I think big benefit it has in its favor. But I don't know why they insist on having these matches be elimination. Like, like, like to the point where like if they, they finally get to the elimination, they're like, we need to see more of this. Like there's, it never feels that way. They should just make the, they should just make all of them one pinfall. Like that, like one of the worst things about that first match was just like, you had to have like six pinfalls. Um, yeah, and this one, you know, wasn't as bad because it was tag team. But yeah, these matches just aren't that good. I, you know, they're clearly like getting pushes based on their reputations because their performances in ROH up to this this point are just none of them are really particularly impressive. Red was fairly good on the first show, especially in the match against Jay, but certainly he didn't even stand out as anything special in this match. You know, like you like you mentioned, he did the uh, the 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 his one of his uh, big moves. I guess it was. Is the infrared or the red alert off the top rope? Either infrared or red alert. I forget. I mix yeah. them up because he has yeah. so many red themed yeah. finishers. Yeah, red infrared. I think it's the red yeah. alert. I think the infrared might be like the standing. Uh, okay, standing yeah. Standing shooting star press, but um, he, and he just lands right on uh, right on the, his leg. Uh, I guess it was. Um, I don't. One of the maximums. I don't remember which yeah. one. Um, 
so it's just like you know, no one is really no one is really impressive in any of these matches. Yeah, and it's another yet another segment on the show where it just feels like a continuation. I know it's kind of setting up something we're going to see on the next show, but it it just feels like a complete retread of the first show of a segment that wasn't good to begin with. I think this ages poorly, but like I said on the 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 match these six had on the first show. I don't think this was even great by the standards of 2002, but it ages even worse. It, it it's below average in my opinion. Well below uh, average. I think it's a bad match. I, I, yeah, in, it, in my opinion. I kind of I, I wasn't bored by it, but it was one of those things where it felt like a complete car crash. And at the end of it, I go, it didn't torture me to watch this, but I never want to see this again. I have like zero desire to ever revisit this. And yeah, it, it just. I don't know how many more months these guys get married together like this, but not a great idea. I don't, maybe just not a great idea to have these guys all together in the promotion, quite frankly, but they kind of get designated as the crazy high flyers for ring of honor at the start. Um, let me just see. I lost track of my notes stalling for time. Um, well, I think then we get into a uh, low key promo. Yes, we get another way too serious, way too girl key promo. He's just, he's just, I mean, he's not good at promos at this point. Yeah, and, and he says he made Christopher Daniels respect him at the end of their match tonight when the entire point of that post-match thing was that Daniels did not respect him. He wouldn't shake his hand. He still made excuses, so it was just a little bit tone-deaf, I think, for what actually happened. Oh, the one other thing I wanted to mention for the last match I forgot was um, they keep referring to the Lucha rules and stuff. And at one point, the crowd to praise the match chants Lucha. And it reminds me that in the early 2000s, I think a lot of U.S. fans just used Lucha as a catch-all to crazy schmas, high-flying indie matches. Like, the same yeah. way a lot of fans would call anything stiff strong style. Yeah, because this was nothing like Lucha. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it, it's nothing lucha at all, but just there's some guys with Spanish names, and it's high flying. We'll chant lucha like it, another. Just chanting, kind of, they're just chanting free. No, no, that's Libre. They're chanting fight, 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 fight. <laughs> Very dated, but yeah. that was the only thing I forgot. But next we get Ken Shamrock. Before the next match, we get it. We get Ken. Well, actually, let me just steal myself. American Dragon versus Low Key in the final match of the round robin challenge. But before they can start to wrestle, Ken Shamrock comes out and asks if he can guest ref. And this is a really interesting career point for Ken Shamrock. He had just finished up his um, first run in Pride MMA with a really good, really close fight with uh, Don Fry. He'd come back later and do one fight for the, more fight for them. But really, he's a bunch of months away from... Um, going to the UFC and fighting Tito Ortiz in the match that would kind of start UFC's big long run to where they are now. And so it's kind of this weird, the cat rain of catches Ken Shamrock at this kind of weird crossroads time and reading the observers. I had completely forgotten this, but Ken Shamrock wanted to come back to the WWF during this time period. He was openly wanting to campaign to, return in a part-time basis and the snag was wwf did not want him as a part-timer they wanted him full-time shamrock wanted to um do mma and wrestling at the same time 
WWF was interested in using him to feud with Kurt Angle, but it never came together. So just kind of crazy where, you know, Shamrock's post WWF just out of, of pride, like weeks earlier, about to go back into the UFC. And here he shows up in the second ring of honor show, you know, to guest referee, one of the bigger matches in the early history of the company. And if I remember correctly, the observer also said that, uh, Ken and Ryan and Shamrock were listed as a $2,500 group deal to wrestle on an indie show or $2,000 if they just did an autograph signing. And at some point in the show during a backstage segment, I think it might have already happened, Creo just offhandedly mentions, hey, that's Ryan Shamrock. So my questions are, did Ryan Shamrock get paid to show up at the show? How much did they make? And do you think Ken Shamrock would be worth, like, say, 2 k to referee this show? This batch. Uh, yes, she probably got paid. Um, uh, I don't know if it's worth that money. I, uh, I don't know that this match would be any less legendary if Ken Shamrock wasn't there. I mean, it's cool that he was there. Um, but, you know, at the time, you know, they, you know, like when you're a small company, it's like, who knows what's worth it or not? Did they get to advertise him? I don't know. I know the Observer a week or two before the show had, had published in the Observer, Ken Shamrock will be at the next Ring of Honor show. So they probably did and advertise I, him. So yeah. I guess that's, I guess that, you know, maybe it's worth it. I don't know. Maybe he's worth like, like I don't know, 20 different, 20 uh, people buying the tickets that wouldn't have otherwise. I don't know. And I don't know if they did this with Ken, but I do know that Ring of Honor would sometimes in this era, in the, in the first couple of years, they would book a guy that they, maybe they couldn't afford his regular booking rate, but they would do kind of a combined appearance on the show shoot interview to kind of justify the cost. Like, I think they did that with Terry Funk a year later, they, where they, they booked him to wrestle Punk and do a shoot interview to kind of justify, like, the price that a Terry Funk would charge. So I could see them also doing that with a Shamrock going, hey, you know, do an autograph signing and a shoot and ref this match and we'll give you a nice chunk of money. And yeah, that makes we'll sense. Kind of We'll kind of justify it by getting all these different diverse things out of you. Yeah, this, the idea of like some like paying money to see somebody just like make an appearance is so foreign to me. Like I'm not the kind of guy that would go to like an autograph signing or anything like that. Like I just I don't see the appeal in it. So you know it's hard for me to get in the mindset of like what would and wouldn't draw when it comes to a performer who's not actually going to be like doing much. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And especially since this is. This is the this is this is after the show where Eddie Guerrero wrestled super crazy. So you've already been kind of spoiled in that sense, where you got a, some pretty, especially Eddie, two pretty relevant, really good still workers in a match, and now you're just getting like a Ken Shamrock appearance, yeah, exactly. which seems like a step down. But anyway, in the third round robin challenge match, it was okay, I guess. Um, American Dragon beats Low Key. In 32 minutes, 7 seconds, when Key passes out in the cattle mutilation, which allows them to end the round-robin challenge which eat with each guy having a record of 1-1. One and one. Matt, I oh. know... Oh, you want to... Can you repeat the time on that match again? 32 minutes, 7 seconds. Okay. So a little over half an hour. Gotcha. So, Matt, I think we both really like this match, but I think you absolutely loved this match, so how about you start on this one? All right. Um, well, first of all, Shamrock, you know, I think to kind of like set the tone, he does the whole like, I'm going to read the instructions on the mic in the middle of the ring thing, 
which uh, he did not do at uh, WrestleMania 13. Um, but I thought it was, you know, it was a nice little cool touch. Um, they still, so, so let me see. I have a lot of notes here, so I'm going to try to, like, maybe not read all of them, but, like, just so if I'm, like, pausing for a second, that's why. But So it starts out with chain wrestling, but it's, like, not, excuse me, it starts out not with chain wrestling, but with, like, submission MMA stuff. And it's, like, very snug, like they're really wrestling. And I almost wondered, because we were talking about how they didn't plan anything when we were talking before the show. Like, were they, I, I wonder if they just went out there and be like, well, let's just, like, grapple with each other like for real and just like whatever happens happens like yeah the sorry the thing sorry i'm just gonna get this in quick because you uh, mentioned it the thing matt's referring to is me and matt were talking before the show uh a day or two ago about this i was watching an old shoot interview of uh america dragon brian danielson and in praising this match his, his big compliment to this match was him simply saying there was nothing for us to remember in other words you know he was basically saying, you know, we were able to do that match without really having to plan anything. We just went out and did it organically. Yeah, and um, I said before I read my notes, I'm going to read. Um, I'm going to read uh, what Danielson wrote uh, in his book about this match because he has a pretty decent chunk. He says, um, "Ring of Honor shows were long." And being in the main event was always tough because every match on the card was trying to steal the show. I, I wouldn't say that was true about this show. I don't know. <laughs> but, um, but Gabe was smart, and for the final match, he booked legendary MMA fighter Ken Shamrock to be the special guest referee to give the main event a special aura. Given Shamrock's past, Key and I wrestled a match that was a hybrid of martial arts and pro wrestling. We used legitimate arm locks and knee bars as well as hard kicks and le- into the legs and head, but then we'd mix it in with more realistic hard-hitting elements of pro wrestling. Inspired by the match Regal had with Chris Benoit two years earlier, that was the one at the 2000 Pillman Memorial Show, um, to give it a more realistic element and make it seem like a fight, we avoided things like hitting the ropes. I ended up beating Key when he passed out while in the cattle mutilation. Out of all the matches we had during that period, to me, that one was by, was the best by far. Overall, this second event, more so than the first, cemented low-key Daniels and me as the top guys in the company. After, and after the show, ROH became a monthly booking I could count on, which was pretty hard to find in the world of independent wrestling. So, so I think that kind of tells you kind of their mindset going in. But I, you know, I really do feel like it was probably they were just like they were wrestling. Um, and you really notice the stitches above uh, Dragon's Eye during this. Um, I thought the announcers did a good job of, of putting over Dragon's neck injury, but they were still, you know, you know, yap, yap, yapping to the point where it was a little bit distracting. But um, Karina at one point mentions, like, back in the early 80s or uh, 70s, the, do, he was like, do you remember, Eric, like, when the headlock was used as a submission maneuver? And I was trying to think, you know, maybe I'm, like, out of loop, but was that, like, who did that? Who used the headlock as a submission maneuver in the 70s and 80s? I don't know. I don't have an extensive, like, first-hand... I, I study a bit of wrestling history, but I haven't seen a, a lot of 60s and 70s stuff yet. Well, he didn't say 60s. Like He was like late, okay. se- late 70s, early 80s, which is what mm-hmm. made it made me think, like, hmm, I've seen wrestling from back then. I don't remember that. Like, I, I will say that, that they worked this match to kind of make him look good in that, in that comment, because the thing I... Uh, I'll let you go back to your thoughts, but to interject here, the the thing I really noticed about this match is how snug and tight all the mat work and submissions were. Like, I forgot, I took for granted today's submissions. They don't look painful. Like, you just go, 
well, that looks cool and like it should be painful. So I accept it. But there was at least one, there was a lot of submissions here, but particularly there's this one where I think, um, Dragon has low key and like a crossface type move, and he's trapping Key's leg at the same time and like yeah, pulling it that, back. I wrote that one down. Yeah, that was. There's no, there's no way that couldn't have been at least severely uncomfortable for real. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure they all were. Like they, like this, like they were basically like really like grappling, and it, but like and. You know, I I can't think of too many matches in the U.S. that I've seen like that. Like it was like a lot of like that, like shoot style from Japan in the '90s, but like kind of Americanized and like like a little bit faster paced than a lot of those matches, and a much hotter crowd. Because if you if you watch some of that UWFI stuff, like one of the things that you notice about it is like, oh, these crowds are deadly silent. Like they're not dead; they're just silent watching those matches. And this was like an American crowd, so they were applauding, they were you know whooping and calling, you know, they were really into it and really respectful. But there are lots of cool stretches. Basically, um, the, the 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 way the match ended up get, uh, breaking down was Dragon would do these like really cool submissions. Key would get out and just kick the shit out of him, like kick the shit out of his head and his legs, and then dra- and then kind of repeat for a while. And um, Gargiulo again was like talking about how like Loki uses like a kick as a defense. Like he has this like thing about like wrestlers using offensive moves as defensive yeah. moves. I don't really get what he's talking about a lot of the time, but it's just like a, a, a trope that he keeps going back to. But um, you know, like well, Key will just kick the crap out of him. Dragon will roll out of the ring like he's almost knocked out, and then um, uh, during the match they they push uh, Donovan Morgan. Uh, is debuting next month against Daniels and Styles is debuting next month against Loki and Eddie. So they do a pretty good job of like doing the promotion during the main event, which they will become a, a familiar thing with uh, Gabe Sapolsky's uh, RF video and ROHWrestling.com plugs during the main events. Um, but you know, just like the submissions all look great. The crowd was like completely wrapped up in it the whole time. Like it never gets boring and they're on the mat for so much of it. It's really impressive. Like for I'd say a good like eighteen minutes of the match, they're just like on the mat and then like with a few breaks for Loki kicking the crap out of him. Um and then um I guess uh, Dragon hits the first suplex of the match, like he hits a bat suplex and then he kinda starts kicking and striking and chopping to the back. Um Key hits like a a brutal like backflip kick to Dragon's head. Um, the crowd at this point is completely enthralled. Uh, he takes full control, Loki does, with kicks and submissions to Dragon's neck. And Carino um, actually gives some interesting facts, which is um, at one point uh, Loki has like a choke on Dragon on the outside, and like he's like, "Oh, look, Dragon's rolling his tongue because when you're in a choke, you roll your tongue so you don't get choked out," which is actually something I didn't know. So that's actually was some pretty good insight. Then they then they finally around like the eighteen twenty minute mark they start going into the high impact stuff. Um, there's a, a roaring elbow and dragon suplex for a near fall by dragon. Uh, dragon goes for the top road headbutt, but it goes right into a Loki's feet, which I think the announcers actually missed that Loki got his feet up. They seem kind of confused. But then Key goes on offense, hits a tidal wave, um, hits his own dragon suplex for a near fall. Key uses the cattle mutilation on him on dragon, but dragon slides out and goes into the key clutch. Um, the dragon clutch, I guess, would be the would be what he calls it. Um, the crowd at this point is not quite yet buying that these moves could be the finish, but they're definitely into the match. Um, then um, uh, Dragon hits a cravat suplex, which Carino says he's never seen before in his life. Um, and then now the crowds are into the near falls. Um, there's a big chop fest, um, and 
I would say, like, while I'm watching this, I was just noting, like, this match feels completely state-of-the-art. Like, this match would not, like, this match would feel, like, new and exciting if it happened now um, in an American indie. Um, Key goes for, like, a springboard back kick, but Dragon catches him with a drop kick, which which is an awesome spot. Then uh, there's a Brain Buster and Key Crutcher, and Dragon kicks out, and that gets, like, a standing ovation right there. Um... Uh, Key hits the dragon's, uh, uh, excuse, excuse me, the uh, the phoenix splash right onto dragon's knees. Um, then Danielson hits like you know his classic top rope back suplex, um, and, and like Key kicks out at like the last possible split second, which was awesome. Um, Key reverses the uh, a second back suplex attempt into a top rope Key Crutcher, which again everyone does a standing ovation. Holy shit, ROH chant! I think it was the first ever like organic ROH chant in the middle of a match. Um, and after the Key Crusher Dragon like rolls out of the ring, um, and uh, Key rolls him back in, gets a near fall with Dragon's foot on the ropes, and then um, kind of uh, Key kicks like more brutal strikes, goes for the tidal wave. But Dragon catches them in a full Nelson and then hits a Regal Plex, which would be like a finisher of his years later. But Regal Flex right into the cattle mutilation. Um, like, and Dragon gets tired from bridging, I guess, because of his neck. So then he, he releases, goes right back into a full Nelson, and does like almost like a variation of the cattle mutilation where it's actually instead of like the double chicken wing, it's actually a full Nelson. And that ends up with Loki passing out, his arm drops three times, and that's it. And both guys basically just collapse in a heap like you'd see in like the big All Japan matches. Like They're just lying there. The crowd is just going completely berserk. I'm going completely berserk, even though I've seen the match before. Um, but it's just like, imagine this match if it had like really good commentary. Like Imagine this match with like Jim <laughs> Ross or even like Gabe on commentary. Imagine what this match would be. But yeah, I, I to me this is a five star match. Like I, I just like when I can watch a match from fifteen years ago and be like, whoa, like this is like new seeming now. Like that's really impressive. And the execute, I mean, the, flawless. Like what can you name like a flaw of this match? And besides that, it was influential. Um, these two guys ended up having a huge career. The company ended up being huge because of this match as well as the previous main event. Um, so I think it has everything that it needs to be a five star match. This match. I'm not sure if I would go five stars. I'm not sure. I thought it was a fantastic match. The thing I get from watching this match is I always knew Loki and American Dragon were great. I, uh, I've i seen this match before, and, you know, Brian Danison's one of my favorite wrestlers of all time. But I almost this match almost impressed me more than I thought it would, and I, I thought that would have been impossible to do because... It's weird. You watch this match, and maybe it's just because we've been watching, you know, the first two entire shows before this. We before we saw this match, there aren't. I don't think there are two other guys in that scene that could have had this match if they had wanted to, if they had tried to. No, wait, wait. Well, I, I'll, I'll go one further. I don't think there were two other wrestlers in the entire country. Yeah, like I don't think anyone else was capable of having this match, even if their life depended on it. Which I, there's a lot of great matches I see now, and sometimes there's certain guys that can do things athletically where I say no one could do that. But for the most part, I don't get that feeling where I see a great match and I go, no one else on the scene right now or in the country is even is able to do this. And I don't even know if like Brian Danielson in 2013 could have done this match. Like there was just, he was just there was a time and a place where this is what he did. You know what I mean? Yeah. 
there's sometimes where you kind of evolve past a certain thing, but but before you do, you kind of hit this sweet spot where you're just hitting a certain style, right? And and a lot of people, you mentioned it, and Dave, and I'll read his little blurb in a bit, mentions it. A lot of people say this match is shoot style, but to me, when I watch this match, there's a little bit of so many elements in this match. Like, you can pick out a little bit of all Japan. You can pick out shoot style. You can pick out... Um, just modern for its time indie wrestling. You, you, there's a little bit of everything. There's f- a little bit of flying. There's you know hard strikes. There's a lot of grappling. There's submission work. That you know there's a bunch of intensity, but it's not like a heel face dynamic. There are just so many elements they blend together, and it feels and they make it they make all those elements feel like they own those elements. It's not just we're trotting out stuff. Because we can do it, which is a feeling a lot of indie wrestlers have. It really feels like this is all in, integrated into who these two people are as wrestlers. And there's just so many great moments. Um, again, the, the mat work is so snug and painful looking on a level above what you will see today in indie wrestling or maybe most wrestling. Um, I think I also loved, you know... These two had kind of the traveling match of their era in U.S. indie wrestling. You know, they main-evented the Super 8 tournament. Then they main-evented the King of Indies tournament, which is what inspired Ring of Honor, that tournament. And then they come here, and they wrestle the match like what it is, which is it's, it's yet another chapter in this great rivalry. Like, they don't hold anything back, you know, and there's even little things that, that may really make you feel like you're watching the latest chapter in something historic because both guys do the other person's uh, submission finisher. You know, Key does the cat mutilation, Dragon does the dragon clutch. And I feel like that's an overused trope in WWE matches. But in um, indie wrestling for this time, it wasn't at all. And it feels really appropriate. Like these two really know each other. Things like, you know, he hit the Phoenix Splash on Dragon on the main event of the first Ring of Honor show, and that was kind of the turning point of that match. And this match, you know, Dragon gets his legs up. Or even little things like when Key does a standard Kawada Kicks type move, um, Dragon's moving a little bit. He's trying to get out of the way, kind of, and eventually he kind of dives through the ropes and gets out. Like, everything just feels a little bit more, a little bit different, like, like, it feels like two guys who really know each other. Oh, you go ahead. No, I, I was just going to say, um, so, like, I watched the, the Super 8 match um, the other day, just for comparison. I haven't watched the King of Indies match in a while, but what I will say about this, like, you know, you see, even those, those matches weren't so far before this, the one thing that these guys clearly improved on was match construction, where they were able to, like, build intensity and drama to the point where like you know i'd say if you could say if you, if you could say one thing that would keep this match from being five stars it would be like that it doesn't it's not part of this like dramatic like ongoing storyline right like it's, yeah. it's not like it doesn't have like this emotional payoff but because of the way these guys work this match and the way the drama built and climax it actually does to me like it felt like an emotional match even though it didn't like really come in with a built-in storyline or like grudge between the two wrestlers it's incredible that these two guys are like 20 and 22 respectively i think like so that there's no veteran in the match like that's like putting it together for them they put this match together that's an incredible amount of like artistry and talent i think 
to uh, to to hang on these two guys' hats. I don't, I don't know if you agree with me, but like, it's not just the moves, it's not just the execution, and it's not just the choice of like the the kind of the groundbreaking style. It's the the match that they laid out because I think that's like the that's the hard part about wrestling, right? It's like putting together a match and like with ups and downs and drama and a climax and like getting the putting taking the people on an emotional ride and like these guys were like so like beyond their years in terms of the way they could construct a match and obviously you know uh brian danielson's been called a genius when it comes to match construction over the years and it's like he already was and and let's not forget you know again going back the danielson thing praise for this match was there was nothing to remember so this is all done or organically you know a lot of indie guys or wrestlers in general much older than them have problems creating a match this good without at least laying out certain key sequences and if you believe dragon you know they basically did it all on the fly like impromptu in the ring and also don't forget these guys both had full-length matches on the same night before this match and they still have a match of this level that goes over half an hour yeah. Like that, that adding even more to kind of like the degree of difficulty of pulling this off, and yeah, just a fantastic, fantastic match. Still holds up. Um, it's incredible that it holds up because like we were talking about like the matches that are you know kind of just like storyline matches. You know, they're the ones that hold up, right? Because you don't they're not reliant on like fancy moves or like doing things that are new. This match at the time, I think a lot of what people liked about it was that it was like groundbreaking, right? Like it was like something that they definitely didn't see too much in the US. Like they were doing like, you know, new hybrid submission moves with like high impact whatever and all this. But it actually still holds up just as well, like despite that. Like a lot of the stuff like I said, still feels new because you just you don't see it that often. You certainly don't see it done this well. Yeah, I, you know, this is the kind of match where I always thought from the first ballot, Brian Danielson should get in the Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame just on his in-ring work. And I don't believe many guys deserve it just on their in-ring work. But when you consider this was 15 years ago and he was already cranking out matches at, at this level, like there's hardly anyone that that I think can lay claim to that at this age. Loki, that's, that's the like, only other one, yeah. yeah. And unfortunately for Loki, he kind of shot himself in the foot by, you know, kind of burning in too many bridges, or he could be right there with, you know, Dragon. Yeah. But um, I'm trying to think of the last other few things in my notes I wanted to get to from this match. I also just liked how they created so many big moves and near falls at the end, but they paid care to not just make them feel tossed off and just for just to get the big kickouts. No, the selling like, was amazing, and they, 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 they lingered on it, and it was dramatic. Like that example you listed before, I think is the key one, where um, you know Loki hits a second rope key crusher, not just his finisher, but this uh, off the second rope, and that should end a match. But they instantly, you know, Danielson instantly, you know, rolls, you know, exhausted and half knocked out to the floor, and Key eventually gets him back in, and the first thing he does is try and cover. But just doing that simple move completely justifies the kickout, you know, and it makes it seem like a bigger deal. Like, if Key wasn't so exhausted, he could have gotten him in the ring sooner. You know, if Dragon hadn't had that barely enough, you know, awareness to get out of the ring, he would have lost. And just stuff like that, they, they, they give you that extra little touch of care yeah. that other matches weren't giving on spots like that to kind of make everything feel less like a collection of just cool stuff. 
yeah, I, I the more I talk about it, and like, I, to me, this is one of the best matches I've ever seen. Like, just in terms of like everything together. You know, after the match, you know, even the announcers when the, when you see them finally like getting to their feet and getting the chance and shaking hands. They actually, the announcers finally stop speaking so loudly because even like they like can't just like get over the awe of it. And you know, it's the handshake that happens, like, you know, it feels like very genuine. Even watching Ken Shamrock, like he seems in awe of it. And you know, remember we were, I, I don't, maybe I was talking to you or someone else, we were talking about like, does Ken Shamrock even know? like that he was a part of something so incredible like i'm sure he knows how a big deal the austin heart match was yeah but does he have any idea of like how big of a deal this was and watching him here after this match like yeah i think he does unless his like his memory is completely shot i think he (laughs) this is like like, i think if you asked him about this he'd be like oh my god that was like oh my god in the brian danielson shooter interview they asked him did Shamrock say anything to you after the match? And he said, no, he just gave us the typical keep doing what you're doing and you'll succeed speech. But, I mean, I do have it hard to believe he couldn't see this to be a great match. No, and he I, was very... A- sorry. No, it's okay. Um, he was very active as a ref, too. He kind of made a couple odd but interesting choices. Like, at one point, they're in a submission that gets to the ropes, and he drags them back to the center of the ring while they're still in the submission, which is what they would do in Pride, which he just came out of. There's that moment where a great moment where a dragon's trapped in a choke and they dive through the ropes and he keeps the choke on and um, Shamrock falls them outside and keeps checking for the submission even though they're outside the ring. So there's a couple things where he doesn't um, keep to the legit the rules of, of Ring of Honor, but I be- he's overall, I would say he's a very active, passionate referee without distracting from the match, which I think is kind of all you can ask for, especially from kind of a celebrity guest ref yeah he did a great job and also like you were saying i've been thinking all week just about is there another person like i'm sure shamrock has guest refereed at least a few matches when he was in wwf but in terms of just has there ever been anyone that's guest refereed so few matches and ref two matches this good like the fact that he he you know his first kind of guest ref ever you know Austin Brett at WrestleMania 13 may be the best WWF match ever. You can create an argument for it. And then, you know, years later, he just wanders into the second show in Ring of Honor history between these other two huge MMA runs, and he just happens to ref, like, one of the best matches in indie wrestling history. Yeah, I, it's, it's, I mean, it's just luck, I guess. You know, I mean, what else could it be? Um, but yeah, Magic. It's, it's pretty impressive. You know, I, I also thought that the standing ovation and the thank you chants was... To this day, one of like the longest and most passionate ever in ROH. You know, the only ones that I could think of that were really like much more dramatic than this were, well, the Joe versus Kobashi one, um, and maybe the couple of the Punk and uh, Joe matches. But otherwise, I like this is like this like stands out as being like because I think these these fans are just like legitimately like like oh my god like what did we just see? I don't know if this was all made to the DVD. I was just so enjoying kind of the afterglow of this match that I didn't really keep track. But I think Dave said in one of his reports that it was a six-minute standing ovation after the match. I wouldn't be surprised if it was like six straight minutes. Yeah, I and guess if, if you count like the them lying on the ground, getting up, shaking hands, like chanting speech for Danielson, Danielson taking the mic, I think all that probably was about six minutes. And it's really cool. I was We were talking about this yesterday, but I love in the final few minutes, you can see the crowd realize how special the match is. And you can almost mentally see them preparing, like, when this match ends, we're going to go apeshit and really 
show appreciation. Yeah. Like they're, they're into the match the whole way, but there's a point near the end where I think they start standing up more and just getting more excited. And I think you can tell like it, it's a match so good that the fans in the in in the moment, not in hindsight, could realize what they were seeing. Yeah, totally. And yeah, then I would they start chanting speech, right? <laughs> Yeah, and Dragon does the self-deprecating, you know, you guys obviously have never seen my interviews, you know, an early example of kind of Danielson's, you know, very humbleness, you know, kind of putting himself down a little bit. That's why I look up to him. And uh, he, you know, he just gives a very humble kind of to-the-point speech where he thanks the crowd, he thanks Shamrock, he thanks Loki, and, you know, just being the kind of straight-ahead good guy and also, the guy, you know, he's very genuine about that. You know, it doesn't feel like a character. That just feels like Brian Danielson. Definitely. And right. So, I, so likable. He's such a likable guy. Yeah, like everything he does is just... I, I know some people in the past have said, oh, you know, sometimes he would smile when he cuts certain serious promos. But I think it's because he has a hard time not being authentic, which I think yeah. adds to pretty much everything he does. Right. And... I guess we'll give a little bit, to sum this up a little bit from Dave, because he did watch this match too. He wrote, Saw the American Dragon versus low-key match from the 330 Ring of Honor show in Philadelphia. The match was amazing for what it was, but the crowd made it. That same match with a, before another crowd wouldn't have gotten over with all the serious wrestling. But this crowd gave it a six-minute standing ovation. They relied a lot on shoot-fighting positioning and spots early, combined with some pro-wrestling submissions, hard forearms, cool kicks, and eventually even high-flying. Like a best of pride, UWF and New Japan, all their, own cre- all their own creativity all thrown into one match. Ken Shamrock as ref helped a lot as he sold everything well. I don't think I've ever seen a match as good in that style in the United States. So that was a... Yeah, I, I, it annoys me how Dave has to qualify it, like by like you know, like it, you know, this crowd, blah 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 blah. It's just like the match was great. Like, what what he's he's so worried about like how it would get over like from a business perspective. It's just like it worked where it was. So I don't really. Part of me, I, sorry, go ahead. Sorry, um, part of me wonders if that was um, if that shows just how different the mindset was back then because every time. It, Tonight, on tonight's show where we've talked about kind of Dave's quotes, all of them sound almost kind of beaten down like, yeah, this was great, but the fans wouldn't accept this in WWE or WWE would never push this. Like, you know, there's almost this feel, there's almost this re- resignation to what Dave's writing like, this was great, but it wouldn't work anywhere else, which it kind of comes off as a put down, but also just kind of comes off as like, I got to tell you guys the truth. Like, I got to, I got to be real because this is depressing. Yeah, but it's okay to just analyze art as art sometimes and not always as commerce, in my opinion. Yeah, Dave definitely ties that all. I think Dave doesn't usually separate that very often these days. Yeah. Younger, sassier 80s Dave definitely would, but yeah. I think True. older, wiser, more reserved Dave wouldn't. But yeah, I don't know if there's much else to say about that match. Well, there's a lot, but this podcast shouldn't be five hours. But no. I mean, it was amazing. And. I personally like the Era of Honor Begins match a little bit better just because it's so different. But this one hit me a lot more. Than yeah, the- I mean, I it, it was listening to you talk about it now actually makes me like the match even more. It just how passionate you were about it. Mm-hmm. It got me more excited for it, and it's it's crazy where 
they don't have a lot more notable matches together after the singles matches. No, this is kind of like the end of an era. Which is weird, because it feels like they could have gone to this well way more. I know this same year they have a tap-out match in Jersey All-Pro Wrestling that Dragon really puts over in a shoot as a match, maybe not on the level of this, but also another one of his favorites. And... They have a match a couple years later in Ring of Honor that ends in a DQ, and I don't know how much else they have other than that. Yeah, it's, I'm not sure. It's kind of, you know, for as legendary as this was, it feels like they could have done even more, but it just never came together. Um, it's kind of cool having this as, like, the one, like, this is just, like, the one artifact, and they just, they just like, let it all hang out, you know? Yeah, and... Uh, what these two shows now that we've seen the major match now that we've seen not just these two shows but all the major matches from these first two shows you know ring of honor wouldn't be alive without gabe sapolsky and rob feinstein and carrie silken and doug gentry probably but it also wouldn't be alive without american dragon and low-key and christopher daniels particularly the first two without without them in these first two shows these shows are nothing like there's not there's some okay stuff on the undercard, but these guys literally made Ring of Honor in the first two shows. Like the company owes a huge gr- debt to these men. Does that make you change your ranking for the uh, greatest ROH wrestler of all time? Well, I think I'm just teasing. Yeah. <laughs> well, we'll have to see. You know, fans will have to listen in a few years when I rewatch those shows and see if I change my opinion. But I have to admit, you know. Maybe if I had watched this show before we had done the list of and learn, go back and listen, kids, if you haven't, that show kind of spawned this series. But, I mean, it's hard. It, it, again, it, it made me realize how important these guys were, even when I already thought that going in, watching these last two shows. Like, I even, I underestimated how important they were, even though I already, already was giving them a lot of credit. For sure. But, so, obviously, I think me and Matt, like, have said enough to go back and watch this match. Like, there's a lot of matches I'll t- and shows I'll say, go back, maybe, but you don't have to. Like, if you've never seen this, go back and watch this. If you haven't seen this in a long time, go back and watch this. Agreed. 100%. And so we'll just wrap up now. Um, we get a brief music video telling us that nothing has been settled. And ROH will that- introduce two new, quote, players... Uh, with appreciation. New video game characters with yeah. Donovan Morgan and AJ Styles. We also get told that Eddie Guerrero will be coming back. And we get a little backstage segment with all of Mikey Whipwreck students fighting. Whipwreck calls um, Brian XL Road Dog in addition to Bow Wow this time. Then he tells him to leave. Then he yells at Red and says if Red can't find a partner he can trust, he'll find him a partner he can trust. It's going to be Eddie Guerrero. And um, then the very final segment of the show, we get a bunch of the TWA, Texas Wrestling Academy students, Spanky, American Dragon, London, and Simply Luscious are just all hanging out after the show. They're like, Simply Luscious and London are like giving Dragon props for, for the match. Dragon's eyes all stitched up, looks pretty gnarly. And Spanky's obviously gets jealous and start just starts being a little dickish spanky about it and then ruby rudy boy gonzalez comes in their trainer and says he'll talk to gabe about booking a match with all of them in it for the next show 
And then at the very end, how this ends the DVD is Dragon leans in to show off his stitched up eyebrow and gives kind of a smile and a wink to the camera. And I think I, I was straight before this moment. I think I'm gay now because <laughs> I want to date Brian Danielson because he's such a sweetie. Well, you can't because I'm going to. <laughs> uh, we'll triple date him with Bree. All right. Sounds good. Let's triple date. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I, but the one thing I did note about this segment is like it makes all of these three guys seem like real cold-hearted pieces of shit because if I were them, I think all I'd be talking about is that our, our comrade from TWA just had to go to the hospital because his leg was completely broken off. <laughs> I never even thought of that. Oh, my God. Yeah. I'm I'm one of those people because I would have been there too. Like, ugh. well, Chris no, who? Well, no, because you weren't right there watching it happen, and yeah. this was 15 years ago, so you don't have to feel the panic. Yeah, because hey, you know, because that sells that almost that no one even went to the hospital with him. Like they're just like, uh, Chris is in a strange city getting his ankle stuck back on. Uh, hey, let's just hang out and get a milkshake, guys. Yeah, like. I- <laughs> I mean, in real life, like, I get it. Like, you know, he was in the hospital. There's nothing they could do. Like, they have, they still have to go, they still have to be at work. But, like, as in the storyline, yeah, you'd think that they would be, like, really worried about him. <laughs> but, uh, but, but, no, but, it's, the, it's that poll, that web poll. That's the most important thing. <laughs> I love the web poll. But, so overall, I would say this is a better show than Era of Honor Begins. Yeah, there, I are, more, think, there are more good matches. Yeah, there's a shocking amount of repetitive stuff on this show. I think these first two shows kind of stand together in some ways, but obviously the big change they made was splitting that great main event into three matches, and so instead of getting one great match, you get one great match and a very good match and a good match, which makes all the difference, I think. Yeah. This is worth, I think, going out and getting the DVD or, you know, if you can find it. I think it's worth paying, you know, the 10 15 bucks to get this. It, there, there's enough good stuff, particularly the bookends, the opener and the end. And, you know, especially this is just a great this is a great DVD to show people early era Brian Danielson because you get two great examples of how great he is in this yeah. That's DVD. true. That's true. If you happen to like meet random people that are like, I'd like to see some early era Brian Daniels. Yeah. Like, well, like I missed the show for you. Like, not even mid stuff. Like, show me a great example of him. Like in the first couple years, I would. Th- this would be the show I would pick. I would say, just watch his two matches, and you'll get a pretty, you'll get a pretty great picture of where he was at. But saving that, find the main event at least and watch it. Yes, the, the main event's the only essential match, but I feel like you'll get enough out of the the opener too that it probably warrants it and there's a couple funny goofy skits and things like that yeah so you know it's worth 10 15 bucks um and that should do for today's second episode we went longer than i think i intended but i i think it was a good ride to have and we'll be back sometime in the future for the third show night of appreciation will we hate it will we appreciate it will we appreciate it I don't know. Hmm. We're going to have to watch it. It's going to have Eddie Guerrero's farewell. It's going to have the gauntlet match with Dragon and Spanky and London and Michael Shane. And it's going to have some little-known guy named AJ Styles debuting in Ring of Honor against some real crap opponent named Low Key. I I guess they'll do something. And bonus feature, report from our triple date with Daniel Bryan. Yes, yes, yes. Um, We're going to have to find a vegan restaurant in British Columbia. That's my area. Well, uh, there, are pl- there are plenty in Brooklyn. I will tell you that. Oh, God damn it! You got home court advantage. 
So, again, if anyone wants to contact us um, through the years at gmail.com, at Trevor Dame, at Mayor MGF, Voices of Wrestling Forum, F4W Forum, Pro Wrestling Forum. We're everywhere. You can't escape us in your darkest hour. Thecubsfan.com is the home of the podcast. And thank you again, Cubs, so much for giving us the full season order after the pilot. (laughs) We retooled. We recast some parts. And I hope we made you happy. I know Cubs wanted the show to change from Through the Years about Ring of Honor to about the song Through the Years by Kenny Rogers. Just every episode, um, a new angle on the song. Yeah, I mean, he'll we'll never, be a little... We'll never dis- let you down, Cubs. He'll be a little disappointed, but I think we'll win him over around hour two of this show. <laughs> and unless, Matt, you have anything else to say? Uh, peace, niece. Pe- peace, niece, and blazin' cousin. Goodbye, everybody. <laughs>